Hello, friends, and welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is Stephen Dimmitt. Today's guest on the podcast is Carlos Tecatch. Carlos is an undercover crusher who you have likely never heard of, but I really enjoyed our conversation. It was one of the most interesting conversations I've had on this podcast and spanned many interesting topics. Carlos is a teacher. He has a master's degree in literature and teaches composition or writing and communication. He's spent a great deal of time as a substitute teacher and as a community college professor in Bakersfield, California, and later in Bishop, California. Carlos is also an author. He wrote a very comprehensive training for climbing book that he gives away for free, which we talked about in this episode and which you can download for free in the show notes for this episode. You can find those at thenuggetclimbing.com. The book is targeted toward bouldering, which is Carlos' preferred discipline of climbing, and the program he lays out in the book is what has worked for him over the years and what has gotten him to V13. He has sent several of them, and he started pretty late in climbing. He started in his 20s, and he has also seen success using this program in training some of his friends and people on Reddit who he has given the book away to. So I definitely recommend checking it out if you are looking for some free training guidance. Carlos has also written three sci-fi novels, two of which are available on Amazon, and he is finishing the third right now, and he thinks it will be available soon. He gave me an overview of the plot and the world he created in this episode, which definitely made me want to read them. And so much more in this episode. Carlos is a student of literature and of history and philosophy, and I found him to be incredibly insightful, and I took a lot away from our conversation. Thank you for tuning in, and please enjoy this enriching conversation, at least it was for me, with Carlos to catch. Do you want me to talk? Yeah. Levels, levels, testing, testing, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that looks great. I pressed the record button. Yeah, good, good. That's yeah. a good start. I yeah, that was about that. Sometimes I like, especially if if we're in like a good flow. Sometimes I get neurotic and I like check the recorder yeah. over and over again to make sure yeah. we're getting stuff. But after your story last night about your podcast and forgetting to record. Yeah, that was going through my mind all morning. Like oh. I need to press the record. It turned out it turned out probably for the best um, because <laughs> we were talking about Gandhi or whatever, and I had like taken an edible during our break, and like it started to hit me towards the end, and I started to get off on like these kind of real ranty type things, <laughs> um, which I don't know if it was better or worse. In the end, it never got published, so it doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, definitely towards the end, we got like way off way off base about why I don't know I forgot what he asked me something about why we like value Gandhi so much and versus like these other stories of Gandhi in other mm. places and stuff like that so I got real uh, theoretical about it interesting <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay so, so back to these stickers what's what spawned the sticker idea and, and you make them yourself or, I mean you I, I, I them? order them online and design them myself yeah, yeah. my girlfriend designed the uh, the California and the American National Parks one um, while she was at work one day or something when she was substitute teaching yeah a good sub, sub gig you can kind of like do other stuff 
Those and cool. that was a while ago. Um, and we, we have sold those before. But then during the pandemic, you know, life was just rough for a little while there, especially like in March, right? And when the like first quarantine happened and we yeah. didn't really know if this was like the big one, like the Black Plague or something. It was a really <laughs> frightening time. Yeah. And we were in, living in Bishop. And so it was a really small community. And there was a lot of like fear about that and people coming up. It was just weird. And so one of the things I started doing was reading a lot of like history and philosophy and especially things geared towards social justice. I I told you last night that I got a reading list from a friend of mine who's really into this stuff and in the education world. And so I started going through that and there was just so much good information and I started posting quotes on my Instagram and people responded really well. So then Mm. I was like, okay, how can I do my little part to make people happy or whatever? And so the first time I did it is I made a bunch of stickers and... Um, I, I think it was a, um, a Baldwin quote, James Baldwin quote, Okay. because um, I, I found one of his books really, really interesting. And I offered him for free to anybody who would donate to anything related to education or whatever huh. they found moving. And then that, from there, I would just every now and then make some and mail them out to whoever wants some. <laughs> and it, it worked out pretty well. Cool. Yeah. Do, you, do you have a place where people can reach out to you and request stickers? Um, yeah, just... I mean, they can do it on Instagram. That's kind of okay. how I do everything, Okay. Um, my Instagram. And so, yeah, if they see any quote that they like, or I, I often will just make random ones and, and just offer them, you know, whenever I see fit and whoever gets them, gets them in the 24 <laughs> hours that a story hangs out, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then sometimes I still have like a bunch of those read literature, read philosophy, read history ones. And so um, if anybody wants those, that's fine. And same with the California ones and things like that. We carry them with us and we have like a book of uh, stamps and envelopes and things like that. Mm. So I can always mail them out. When nice. Yeah, it was, you know, we also, another thing I was doing was like painting a lot and like doing watercolor painting and I would mail out my paintings to people. Oh, cool. Um, I actually ran into somebody in Joe's who I had never met in person and he had one in his van <laughs> and he recognized me. <laughs> that's um, awesome. Yeah, just trying to make small connections with people and lighten the mood a little bit. Yeah. You know, um, and spread some good information or good ideas from thinkers like James Baldwin, people mm. who dealt with some of the issues we're dealing with now a long time ago and mm. were a bit ahead of their time, you know? Yeah. Um, it's I was completely ignorant of that kind of stuff. And I'm like a reader. I've been reading since I was a little kid. Um, yeah. I'm a lot of history and philosophy. And so to find this big hole in my personal information base, um, especially as somebody who's really like, as a literature major, you know, the social justice is a big part of that really, or at least, um, you know, environmental justice and racial justice. So the fact that I had never read some of this stuff kind of blew me away and I figured mm. I'm probably not alone in that. Yeah. What were some of your favorites from that reading list that you got from your friend? Favorites is a hard word because some of or them are most, like infuriating. Most impactful maybe. <laughs> yeah. That's what I mean, a good way. Yeah. Um, anything by James Baldwin. Okay. I can't remember what the one that I read was. It was like a collection of his essays and his... Uh, Who's James Baldwin? James Baldwin was a... I'm pretty sure I'm saying the name right. I feel paranoid that I'm getting the name wrong, but this is one of his quotes. Yeah. James Baldwin. I'm always making, want to make sure that I get the names right. Um, and for some reason, I want to say Alec Baldwin. <laughs> right. But he... He was a uh, essayist, mostly, I believe in the 60s and 70s, kind of like, um, and he was kind of ancillary to the Black Panther movement. He wasn't really with them. Okay. Um, actually, sometimes they butted heads because he was a little bit um, less militant than they are, but maybe a little bit more militant than Martin Luther King Jr. That's my take on it. Okay. Um, and so he was a black activist. Uh, I believe he was gay as well. Um, I can't don't, I can't be sure of that though because I I tend to focus on his writing and not so much his um, biography at least with the reading I did, but his stuff I, he also wrote essays or uh, novels and plays I think, and his stuff his essays are just super super powerful they're kind of mm. like polemics they're just like opinion essays almost but his writing I mean, you know as a literature major 
I read a lot of good writers. I've read a lot of good writers, like the classics, and there's reason why they're classics. And so to come across somebody like him who after, you know, studying for six years and having a lifetime in literature, who's like power with the word is still enough to really make you stop in your tracks and think about Hmm. something. It's really rare. Hmm. And I found that in him and something I hadn't found a long time. Yeah. Um, And so like, he was a really good one. The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein. She's a um, Canadian investigative journalist and the shock doctrines about neoliberalism and it's incredibly infuriating because um (laughs) has to do a lot with like developing countries and my family comes from south america okay and so it actually takes place in brazil some of the some of the things they're talking about i found that one to be super super um impactful and almost that one was probably the most impactful because it it really got me um, riled up, if that makes any mm. sense, you know. Um, but in a way that like pushes you forward and, and makes you want to think ahead a little bit. So I found that to be super useful. Um, the Harvest of Empire is about the history of Latin American immigration to America. Also super super interesting um, and hit home because my parents are from South America. So. Yeah, okay. That one really touched me a lot and, and really takes the, you know, immigration is such a hot button topic these days, yeah. but it's really not a new topic. It's been mm. an issue for a really, really long time um, around the world and in America specifically. And that book really kind of covers it from the perspective of the different countries so like Puerto Rico, Venezuela, Guatemala, Mexico, um, and talks about why the movement was happening and what the response was and, and how long it's been going on and the different law changes that have taken place in America about it and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So those three in particular... Um, the Revolution of Everyday Life, who I can't remember the author's name. It's like a, a Danish author whose name I can't pronounce anyways. Okay. <laughs> um, I'll, link to, I'll find it and link to it. In the yeah, it was, it, that one was really, really good. That's the first one I read. It's kind of like a, a base, almost like anarchist utopian work from the 60s huh. and 70s. So it's got this like super utopian, like optimistic vibe that the 60s and 70s had, which is kind of nice actually, because so much of the other stuff I read was not very optimistic <laughs> at all, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, there's, uh, there's more and I could, I could email you a list of the, the list that, um, my oh, friend yeah. sent me, I could email to you because Perfect. I've been actually emailing that list around to people a lot because people would hear a quote and they would ask about it. Yeah. Um, I've also been trying to do not just nonfiction, but also literature that deals with this type of stuff, hmm. which can be a little bit more difficult to find, but like post-colonial literature, um, in particular, a book I read recently called Animals, People by, I think the last name is Singh, S-I-N-G-H. Again, I'm terrible with the names. They don't really require you to remember the names in literature. (laughs) Um, You just look it up when you need to. But that was a very powerful book about um, just impoverished groups of people in India. Um, And I've traveled to India. I spent a month there once. And and so that was really, really interesting and and also a very powerful book. I'm going to read this quote from James Baldwin that you have on a sticker here because I really like it. And this will give people an idea of of what he was all about. The quote says, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Yeah. That one struck me and and stood out. That's why it ended up on the sticker, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. He was, he was a lot of his writing. I mean, he was writing in a time when, you know, the civil rights movement was happening, but right now we all know about the civil rights movement. We all learned about it in school a lot. Um, but there was like a lot of pushback and a lot of resistance back then and a lot of people who just kind of ignored it and didn't pay attention to the news. And I think that's kind of what he's getting at is, you know, he wanted to write and put these problems in people's faces to mm. a degree so that they could face them so they could maybe change them one day. Mm. Even though he he talked a lot about how that's like, a, you know, facing his own sexuality, facing his own uh, what he called blackness, I think, in his literature um, was really difficult, obviously. 
and having to kind of come to terms with all that type of stuff and and all the various things around it and the internalization of colonialization and all that stuff it's like a whole theoretical framework that goes really deep in this stuff <laughs> yeah um which i had a little bit of background in from literature and post-colonial studies but not nearly as much as i should yeah um, especially as a teacher okay yeah interesting um I'm excited about that reading list. Yeah, it's it's. Yeah, I mean it's painful. Yeah. I, I had to start breaking <laughs> right. it up with like something light, like a sci-fi book <laughs> and the, every other book. Um, okay, and I'm still not done with it. I took a break because it's just heavy. Yeah, it's how many heavy. how many books on the list? I think it's like twenty or something. Okay, fifteen twenty. Um, yeah, and then some of them are hard to get because they were uh, they're like out of print or something like that, so mm. they're really expensive. So then I would read like just another one by the same author, say. Okay, and it ends up working out pretty good. Okay, yeah. I want to talk about your Instagram. Okay. Yeah, I was looking at it last night after we chatted, and you have a very interesting way of using Instagram. Like from, you know, if you just look at your feed, it looks like an average climber's feed. There's climbing photos, there's send footage and, and whatnot. But the captions are really interesting. Can you describe how you use your Instagram feed? Well, yeah, you're talking about the quotes and stuff. Yeah. Um, so that's a relatively new development, I okay. think, in the last year. Um, because of the pandemic as well. So I got an Instagram, if you don't mind me backtracking a little bit. Go um, for it. I didn't have social media. Um, I mean, I had like a Facebook I never used or something when it first came out when I was 21 or whatever. <laughs> but I, I didn't really have a social media. I didn't have a smartphone until I was 27. So a little late in the game. How old are you now? I'm 34. Okay. So I've only had a smartphone for yeah seven years. And I got one because I was going back to school and I was like, okay, I need to be able to check emails and stuff. And then when I moved to Bishop, I was offered one class and it wasn't enough to pay rent, so I decided to live in a van, um, which, you know, is not that hard to do as a climber, and I had already spent some time in a van before. But very quickly, it became, I became pretty aware that I was pretty alone, you know, in the van. I would buy, like, a 12 box of beer and be like, oh, this will last me a week. And then I'd drink the whole thing in, like, two nights <laughs> and just watching Star Trek by myself. <laughs> and so I, I wanted some more connection with the world, and, and I wanted to see what my nieces and nephews were doing and stuff like that, you know. So Instagram seemed like the, the clear one to do that maybe was, like, the least evil. And so I got an Instagram. <laughs> I started posting, and I post, like, normal stuff. Um, but then, and, and that went on for a couple of years, just normal send stuff. And I actually made it a point to not post anything political hmm. um, online because it just never seemed like a fruitful space for that necessarily. Yeah. Um, and my opinions on that, and that's still true, I think, but yeah. my opinions are a little more complicated about the whole thing nowadays. Yeah. Interesting. Um, given, given how like prevalent social media is and it's not really going anywhere. So during the pandemic, it just started to feel a little funny only focusing on climbing. And it's an important part of my life and it's been an incredibly valuable and, and, and enriching part of my life. And that's something I want to share with other people, obviously. But at the same time, there's, you know, the world's exploding around us. Um, March of last year with the, the riots and all that stuff and the pandemic. And there was a lot of people weighing in with their opinions and I, I really learned a lot from other people on Instagram. Um, mm. But it's difficult for me to to really give my own opinion because I just don't feel like I, d I know enough about the world and things like that, right? Um, and so I didn't want to start weighing in myself, even though I tend to be a really opinionated person. But I started reading, doing that reading list and I started reading and I just realized that there's all this information out there and all this literature that has been so important to me in my life that a lot of people just don't read that much anymore. Hmm. And so if I could suck people in with... Um, with a cool picture of a climb, but then maybe get them to read an interesting quote from an interesting book that mm. maybe will spark something for them to go check that author out or go continue down. Basically, I just want to use the Instagram this, these days to spread the climbing, but also to spread this other part of my life that um, has been really, really important to me. And, and also maybe 
the only reason I'm still sane in a lot of ways, <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, I vary between quoting from literature and, and quoting from philosophy or quoting from history or nonfiction. And I try to make it topical and on point and also try to give my take on it and where I come from with it, but also try to stay personal because I'm, I'm wary of telling other people uh, what to do and what to think and mm. things like that, you know? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes these writers who I'm quoting from, just said it better than I possibly could. So I <laughs> piggyback off of them a little bit. Mm -hmm. I want to share an example. This is So I, I scrolled through the last half a dozen posts or something on your feed, and I saw your send footage of Turbulence oh, yeah. at V12 in Leavenworth. Yeah. And Leavenworth is, I mean, 30 minutes from where I grew up. Oh, so, no way. Yeah, yeah it's kind of a, a home area. That was a lifeless boulder problem. Yeah, me. it is for me too. Yeah. yeah. Super fun. Yeah, congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, I, <laughs> I almost lost the mental battle on that one. Really? A lot. Yeah, a lot. I had a lot of bad days on that guy. Interesting. Yeah conditions or yeah well you climbed out there I, yeah. I come from the southwest so like humidity is not a thing mm. i did not know what that was like um so the day that i sent it i actually went to it in the morning and it was terrible and i was super frustrated like on the verge of throwing my shoes which is not a good place to be right like you don't want to be there um and then went to steph and she sent one of her projects raging bull um, okay and then yeah. and then i got kind of psyched talking to somebody else and just realized how silly i was being went back to it it was nice and crisp and sent it in a couple of tries <laughs> after that and so it was yeah. really bizarre um that was a good day yeah was a good day i'll link to um to your post in the show notes you had a quote attached to that one from john steinbeck mm, yeah. uh, east of eden quote and i won't read the whole thing but the to paraphrase it basically it's about how we all just want to be good and we want to be loved and that most of our human vices are really just attempted shortcuts to love. Yeah. Why that quote for that post? You know, I read, um, you know, Of Mice and Men when I was in high school. And I should say, East of Eden is one of my all-time favorite oh, books, yeah, yeah. too. So that so, was the one that really stood out to me. So then we can geek out a little bit because... Yeah. Um, yeah, I read I read Steinbeck like you're supposed to, and then I read Grapes of Wrath in my <laughs> 20s or something when I was kind of on a, um, you know, I've always read classic literature and been big on that. But I had never read East of Eden, and I hadn't really gone back to Steinbeck for a decade or something. So I had a friend of mine who, who talked about the book, and I had kept hearing about it kind of here and there, so I decided to give it a read. And I, I was just absolutely blown away by how beautiful of a book it was and how mm. expansive and how just absolutely, I don't know, it, the depth of it and, and the honesty and the compassion that is implicit in his writing and, and explicit for that matter. It just, I, nothing like, I had never read anything like it really. Um, it was just one of those books that for me really re reiterated why I like have dedicated my academic career and to a degree my career um, outside of climbing and all that to literature. Like that's, it, it was like reading Tolstoy for the first time. That's how mm. good it was. And that's maybe like the highest praise I can give because Tolstoy is my favorite author. <laughs> okay. And so, you know, I we were in Leavenworth and there were MAGA rallies ha happening on the street there on the main street in Leavenworth. And this is like right before the election in October and things were getting really, really rough online. My relationship with my family had gotten really, really rough the month prior to that. And partially because of my fault, because I was getting angry and, and really throwing that anger out at my family because um, they tend to be a lot more conservative than I am personally. And there was just so much vitriol and so much, it just, all oh, everything, I don't know, it just seemed really crazy. And at the same time, I was out climbing and having this really wonderful time in this beautiful place with the person that I love and care about in the world, you know, my girlfriend, Steph. Mm. And there, it was just a lot to take in, a lot to take in. And, and something about Steinbeck's perspective on the world, and especially that, like taking, you know, 
what some of us would consider to be weakness in humans, their vices and, and the things they do wrong, right? The things they do, they, they do to hurt each other. And he's able to turn that around and really see it for what it is, which is an attempt to be human. He's able to take the human perspective. I found that to be super powerful. Um, and maybe like something that I personally needed to learn when I looked at my parents saying I got an argument hmm. with my parents about supporting Trump or whatever, you know? And so, yeah, I just, I just thought for me at that moment, when I was reading that book, that quote and the other one about uh, thou mayest, I think it was. Uh, mm. Yeah, it just, it just, his, his compassion really stood out to me and his ability to take these characters who are, some of them are not great people, not people yeah. you want to hang out with, right? Yeah. But he still gives them, you know, the love they deserve as humans. Um, yeah. Even though they're not real humans, that's the amazing part about it, right? And you, I don't know, I love fiction. So yeah, I guess the reason why that quote stuck out to me and why it stood there is we were coming up to the election, things were getting really weird and really rough. And in my own personal experiences with my friends and family, um, I was getting rough when it came to that type of things. And I was losing perspective of the humans I was arguing with. Hmm. You know, I would argue with my dad and all I would see is our differences. And I'd forget about all the wonderful things he did raising me, hmm. you know. And that quote really stuck out to me. It stood out to me as a way to um, try to bridge that gap again and, and remember to be more human and look past that stuff. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, I'll share the, I'll share your post in the show notes so cool, people cool, can yeah. read it. Read the quote. Yeah, and they should read East of Eden because yeah. it's a damn good book. It is a damn good book. <laughs> damn it is good absolutely book. beautiful. Yeah. And and to your point, he's he's so good at showing you how people might end up how they end up. You yeah, know? Like yeah. The, so much of who they are isn't something that they chose. It yeah. was, you know, the dealt the the hand of cards that they were dealt, and it's kind of up to them to to turn some of that around sometimes, you know? And, yeah, that's a really good way. But they have the power too as well. I, it's so beautiful. Yeah, yeah it, it really brought home to me the, the point that when you meet somebody, you're only meeting them like at a moment and like this long up mm. and down journey that is a life, right? Hmm. Not to get too like new agey about it, but you just never know what somebody's background is. You never know what somebody's future is. You know, people make changes and surprise you all the time. People do things. Um, they come from different places and, and, and yeah, he can, he can really capture that Steinbeck. It seems in a way that in a way that's really specific to, um, do it takes place in the Salinas Valley. Right. And I grew up in the San Joaquin Valley, uh, mm. which is in central Southern California. And so a lot of the descriptions he was giving is just incredibly similar to the place that I grew up to. Um, places where I first started developing boulders and stuff like that even. Yeah. Um, and he talks about these farmers and, and, you know, my dad is a laborer or was a laborer his whole life. He started working when he was like nine years old in a factory in Argentina and he's worked full time since then. And he still works full time. He's 57 now or something. Wow. And, um, and so he's owned his own business too, and he's had workers and it just really struck a chord with me. Um, and it was really, I don't know, it's an incredible book. If I ever write a sentence half as good as that book, it'll be, <laughs> it'll be a good day too. Yeah. He's a special writer. <laughs> so you, you have a career now as a teacher? Yeah. I'm on a year off right now. Yeah. And career is kind of a loose word because I haven't worked full time as a teacher yet. Um, okay. my, one of my, I don't know if I'll ever work full, I probably work full time one day. Um, I'm 34 and I have, haven't had a full-time job since I was 21. Wow. Um, which a lot of people, I think they think of that as a positive thing. And I, I actually like it because yeah. I'm not super keen on trying to make enough money for me. It's good. Or I want to make enough money, but I'm not super keen on making a ton of money, um, which is good because not as a, as a teacher, I'm never going to have that issue. <laughs> uh, but for me, it's, I've, I've tried to take a tack in my life where I try to live as minimally as possible and then go from there. Um, which has worked out pretty well. So if I could work part-time until I die, uh, that'd be great. I don't know <laughs> if that'll happen because one day I'll, I'll be old enough that 
you know, my other interests may fade away and, and uh, teaching may be the most important thing. Mm. But so I consider teaching to be like this vocation of mine, something that I'm well suited to that really means a lot to me. Um, but yeah, I work at the community college level. I have a master's. Um, I'm in the middle of a year off right now that Steph and I took before we both go back to school. I'm applied for PhD programs. Okay. And so I'm hoping to start a PhD program in the fall if I get accepted. Um, Steph wants to go back to school and start studying uh, a science like uh, astronomy um, okay. or maybe physics. And so, yeah. What made you decide to go back for a PhD? I just really like literature. Okay. I like really like literature. Is that um, going to change the arc of your teaching or? No, probably not. I mean, okay. I mean, it may just mean that I teach at a university instead of a community college. Got it. Um, it may also mean that I end up at a community college. It's kind of important for me to teach at schools that, you know, serve the less economically advantaged population, which is community college or public universities. I went to a public university, CSUB. Um the only difference would be if I end up at a university full time, I have to publish and all that kind of stuff, like, mm. you know, criticism or whatever it is that I decide to work on, um, mm -hmm. probably eco criticism. But I'm not super worried about that. I prefer to stay in the classroom. Maybe one day I would like to get be I would be interested in um, education curriculum development at a larger scale because we we're talking about a little bit yesterday. The way we do teaching can be really, really weird. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when I was a substitute teacher, you go to kindergarten and everybody loves story time. And by the time they get to me at community college now, everybody hates reading. And it's just, there's something weird, something bad happens in the middle of that, you know, somewhere. And I really want to know what it is. And I have ideas about what it is. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we're yeah going back for PhD. I'm really excited because when I went back for my master's, um, I just had such a good time thinking about <laughs> literature all the time. Like just really digging deep into these stories like, like Steinbeck, right? These writers. Um, and oftentimes it had, you know, their intention don't necessarily matter. You're just thinking really hard about problems that most people probably don't care about, but I think actually matter. You know, mm. I do think narrative and storytelling matters. It's kind of amazing to me how, you know, Netflix is one of the biggest companies in the world, right? That's just a testament to the power of storytelling. That's how much we want mm. to basically put a story in our entire lives all the time. Religion is a story. Branding is a story. Companies are a story now, right? Everything's a story. Uh, but most of us are really not very well educated on storytelling itself and the history of storytelling. Hmm. Um, and so as me, somebody who has studied literature, um, one thing that I've found that's really been helpful to me is it makes sense of the world around me because it seems like the world is a bunch of stories we tell each other and ourselves. Hmm. And so that's really moved me to continue my studies and to push farther and see if I can go a little bit deeper with that type of thing. Hmm. Yeah. Last night you were telling me about substitute teaching and you were describing a discussion that you had with your kids at one point that kind of led to the moment when you knew that teaching was for you. Oh, this was when I was uh, teaching at the college. Okay. Yeah. In, in Bishop? Uh, this was in, in Bakersfield. So I was finishing up my master's. I was still working on my thesis. Okay. Um, and, <clears throat> and so while you're working on your thesis, they let you teach. It's basically a way for them to get cheaper labor out of you. So okay. They don't have to pay you full, full wages. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, we were coming out of the uh, computer lab. And so I teach composition, which is writing. That's what you do when you study literature. You teach writing because everybody has to take it, um, which is actually kind of fun because you really get a, a wide variety of people from the sciences, from sports, athletics, all sorts of places because they all have to take writing. And this was just after, this was in 2016 or late 2015. And I can't remember exactly, and I, I feel bad about it, but um, I believe it was the race rights in Baltimore were happening. And, and, and for me... You know, I'm a, a white guy named Carlos. My dad's from South America. He has an accent, but he's also a white guy. His his dad, my dad is first generation Argentinian. I'm first generation American. My dad's dad is from Ukraine. 
So there's like a lot of Whoa. movement going on there. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so race has always been a thing in my family in terms of like, I've always been aware of the fact that, you know, I don't look like a normal Carlos and people have always made jokes about it. When I was a server, people wouldn't believe me with my name tag. They'd accuse me of stealing the cook's name tag, <laughs> stuff like that. And I always took a sense of humor with it personally. Um, but it was becoming clear you know, having seeing these kind of explosions of, of racial injustice again, which we're seeing now again in the last year, um, became clear that I was on the winning side of that being like a white faced person, you know. Hmm. Um, and so I, I had this I basically dropped my you know, we, I went into class that day and it was the, the tension in the air was heavy because the kids knew the news. The, these students knew the news. It was all over the place. And. I had a whole curriculum plan, a whole whole plan, and I just dropped everything. We just sat there for two hours and talked, and I just listened to them talk about what they, um, you know, what their experiences were with this type of thing and what they thought about it, what they thought about the future. Because it became really clear to me in that moment that teaching wasn't, you know, it wasn't a way for me to impose my will on the world. It was a way for me to try to help these people figure out what they want their world to look like. You know, mm. I'm going to be dead when they're, and they're going to be running things eventually. For, <laughs> and I think that's better. Um, I'm optimistic about that. And I, I learned so much from them in that conversation, um, but I also learned a lot about how I had had an effect on them. Well, they drew a lot from the material in the classroom in the conversation, and that was something I didn't anticipate. Hmm. And so this conversation was this weird synthesis of what we had been discussing in class already, their personal experiences in their life beyond the classroom, my personal experiences in the life beyond the classroom, and it came together in this moment where we could like really communicate in a way that felt meaningful. Um, what was the what was the demographic of the classroom? Mostly Hispanic kids. Okay. Mostly Hispanic kids. The bigger, I think my class is like 85% Hispanic there. Got it. Um, and then I had like two Swedish kids or something who were soccer players. Okay. <laughs> um, which was really interesting actually too, to have their perspective coming huh. from, uh, you know, these kind of more social democracies, um, the Nordic model uh, economics, right? And so, yeah, I just remember walking out of the classroom and I don't remember the conclusions that we came to because I don't think we had any conclusions. It was more like this moment of um, like solidarity, I guess is the word people would use now, where we all kind of like saw each other and recognized that things were messed up and that's not okay. But at the same time, realized that this kind of inner human interaction and this conversation that seemed really special to the classroom and really different from other places, right? Like not, it's not just a being at a bar, having this kind of drunken discussion with your friends, which can be fun. It was much more formal and much more civilized and, and much more directed than that. I don't know, I walked out of that classroom and just knew that this is what I wanted to do. Hmm. This is like the space I wanted to engage in. I even called my mom and told my mom, <laughs> uh, like right then walking to my car. Um, and I was almost in tears about it. It was, it was really special. And I've had moments since that have reinvigorated that of similar experiences. Hmm. It's not a one-off thing. And, and for me, it was really special. When was that? When did this happen? Yeah. 2015-ish. Okay. Yeah. Like I knew at that point I, I might be a teacher because as a liter when studying literature there's just not i mean you can become a lawyer not super interested in law um, <laughs> you can become a you can go into editing and publishing eh. um, i just like studying literature and so teaching was the thing and and i just happened to get lucky that my personality fits really well with that type of thing you know and so i just it just kind of this meeting of the stars i just got lucky and realized happened to fall into the thing that turned out to be maybe the best thing that i can do in the world personally hmm. both for myself and for others i hope so you teach composition, writing, um, and communication as well? Yeah. So in Bishop, um, the so Bishop has a campus. Anybody who's been to Bishop that listens to your podcast has seen the campus on the left when they're driving up towards the Buttermilks out of town. Oh, yeah. Um, up on uh, East Main or whatever. 
Is that what it's called? I can't remember now. I've moved away for a year now. Yeah, West Main. Yeah, yeah, we, West and East Main. That's yeah, right. yeah. And so, yeah, when you drive up the Buttermilks, about halfway to the Buttermilks on the left, you'll see this building, and it says the Eastern Sierra Community College Center. So that's one campus. There's another in Mammoth, and they're tied to Ridgecrest. Okay. But they're super small in in the Sierras, uh, Mammoth and Bishop, and so they don't have a separate communications department. But everybody has to take public speaking because in order to transfer. So whoever's the newest adjunct. That was me. Teaches public speaking, huh. and I had never even taken public speaking. I took drama in college instead to like qualify for the same thing. Okay. And so it was a completely and utterly new experience. I had to make it up from scratch, um, and it was a lot of fun. Actually, it was a lot of fun. And then I taught one literature course too, but at a small college like that, they don't do a lot of literature, unfortunately. Okay. Um, you can try to incorporate it into your writing courses if you can, uh, but it's difficult. Got it. So yeah, but teaching speech turned out to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Has has that? Have you been able to draw on that in everyday life? Yeah, you know, I have always been pretty okay at public speaking. I've always I've always found myself even when I was a kid, I found myself in positions where I was having to talk publicly. It huh. happened fairly often. It was I think I'm not sure like why. Like in what context? Well, so I grew up in in the church. That's okay. what I call it. Um and so like my family comes from South America and their family comes from, you know, Slavic nations. They're super super religious. Okay. Everybody in my family is religious except for me. Um, but I grew up very religious until I was 24. I was um, on mission trips and all that jazz. And I just, I, you know, I found myself in front of the church all the time talking. Huh. Um, it was not super uncommon. Uh, and I was uncomfortable with it. I was really uncomfortable. And I tried to push that away for a long time because it felt like a position of authority I didn't really like. But but yeah, it's come to come to what I was trying to say is that I've just always been relatively comfortable in front of people. Substitute teaching was another thing, right? You just end up in front of 30 people that you never met in your life and have to kind of figure out how to explain to them the things you're supposed to explain. But then actually teaching it made me really have to think about what makes a good public speaker. And so I had this kind of intuitive knowledge of it and this understanding I could get up in front of the class and make people laugh or, you know, kind of guide them to where I wanted to go. But I never really understood why or what I was doing or how mm. to approach that. Um, and so teaching public speaking actually was, it was really interesting, like learning the kind of, this kind of theoretical you know, background behind it and, and what makes a good public speaker, what kind of arguments there are, you know, the difference between like having to focus on your credibility or logic or pathos. Um, it, was, it was really, really interesting. And, and that's helped me a lot in my lecturing in my other courses. It's helped me a lot in situations like this where I have to think about how to present myself mm. and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's made me actually a little bit more um, understanding of people who struggle with public speaking because everybody struggles with public speaking. Huh. <laughs> my students, like I always thought it was, it was not that hard. I get nervous, like everybody gets nervous, but I have, I've had students cry. I've had students turn around and face the wall. I've had students walk out. I've had students be super, super high during their speeches. <laughs> um, the whole gamut of experience in that classroom, it's really, really like, aside from just the struggles of teaching, it's super interesting to watch people in that kind of situation because it's, it, for a lot of people, it's almost the most stressful thing they, they do in yeah, their lives. Yeah, I mean, there's those there's those uh, sayings that it's, you know, scarier than dying for most yeah, people. It's yeah. like the number one fear for a lot of people. Yeah. And that's, I think that's true. <laughs> a yeah. lot of my students really hated it. Um, but I pride myself on making it fun and a low consequence and really getting people out of their shells. Um, I really work hard to do that and kind of make an inviting atmosphere in the classroom and, and get some great speeches out of people. I have some really memorable ones that are fun. That's that's amazing. I wonder, I don't know if this will go anywhere. Maybe it's too difficult to, you know, to wrap up into like one point, but I'm, I'm curious, is there anything that you, um, any advice or like any insight you could give to people for anyone out there to help with like those butterflies and the nerves that creep up like let's say someone's 
someone who's listening to this is about to apply for a job and do an interview or, you know, they have to speak in front of a small gathering for whatever reason. Anything that comes to mind? There, we cover this in class. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of different ways that the, the textbook that I use, which is a great textbook, it's called Practically Speaking. Um, and it's really, really, it's like, I can't, you can't make a public speaking textbook fun. And this one's actually pretty interesting and pretty funny. <laughs> but it gives a lot of it talks about visualization and talks about relaxation techniques these are all things that actually apply to climbing as well which is hmm. kind of interesting right like the you know systematic tensing and and relaxing of muscles in your body um, making sure you eat before you go up there so that you you aren't hungry at the same time because that can be bad um, but the one that is the most important and also maybe the most cliche is just to practice hmm. that is absolutely the best thing um I had, I've had students who would come in after class and practice with me, you know, leading up to their speeches and, and their first one would be awful, hmm. <laughs> really bad, unable to get through it because they're so nervous and not even in front of the class yet, just nervous at the thought of doing it. Hmm. Um, but little by little, they get desensitized to it. It becomes less and less novel. It becomes less and less of a new thing. And, and pretty soon they become more and more comfortable and it never goes away. That's another important thing is you can't expect the butterflies to disappear. That's never going to happen. Hmm. They're always going to be there. I've been lecturing for four years and then substitute teaching for four years before that and before that i was a climbing guide and instructor so almost a decade's worth of talking in front of people in a in a formal capacity i still get nervous huh. um, all the time but you just learn how to deal with it you learn how to be in that space without really like giving too much credence to the nerves it's almost like high bob bouldering in a way right like <laughs> the fear probably doesn't really go away you just learn how to compartmentalize it a little bit hmm. and that really only comes through practice um, and you can't necessarily get yourself in front of people all the time. You know, maybe you don't want to practice in that way. Yeah. You can practice in front of your friends, in front of your family, in front of your mirrors. You can, uh, in front of a mirror, you can record yourself and put it online and send it to people. That kind of thing works really well. Yeah, it's fascinating how that little red recording button is is such a good proxy for having yeah. a live audience. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of <laughs> There's something at that, fascinating yeah. that happens when you press that button and, and you know... Like, this was so interesting to me. When I started doing this, when I was recording the intros for the first time, I was by myself in my van with all the curtains closed. And as soon as I pressed the record button and the thought of, just the thought that what I was going to say was going to be heard by who knows how many people, it was so difficult. I got yeah. so nervous and I had to do like 10 takes for my first couple episodes. Yeah. And then, you know, you, you quickly realize like, okay, I can edit this. I can throw it away. But even knowing that it still triggers it, that like animal, you know, that lizard brain fear thing. Yeah. We, we talk about the flight or fight response in class, yeah. flight or fight. And it's, it's funny because that, you know, evolved so that we could avoid beating by panthers or whatever. Um, and now it's talking in front of people. It's not a dangerous situation, but our bodies interpret that way. And a as lot of real, my, as real physical, as risk real physical and fear. threat. Yeah. yeah. Even just the possibility, right? Like what you're talking about is not, it's not, there's nobody actually listening in that moment. You're just recording. It doesn't have to go anywhere, but the idea of it, it's the brain's a powerful thing. It's mm -hmm. kind of amazing. Um, it, and that's one of the reasons why teaching speech was so much fun was because you really got to see people go through that process and, and, and work it out for themselves um, in a way that I hope benefits them in their, in their lives, you know. Mm. Another piece of advice that I think is useful is um, really know what you're going to talk about. Uh, hmm. You know, really know the stuff you're going to talk about. If you don't know it, maybe it's better to either do the research and really get internalized that information or move to something you know a little bit better and stick to the things you do know. Because when push comes to shove, you're probably going to get nervous. You might stumble and get lost. And if you really know the information, then you can pick it back up much quicker than if you are having to like look through note cards all that more. You know, so kind of really making sure that you understand what you're trying to say. 
Um, and there's a bunch of different ways to go about that from planning to just being knowledgeable on the topic. That helps mm. a lot, I find. Interesting. For yeah, sure, for that sure. makes sense. Yeah. Are there any deeper lessons or ideas or maybe just like ways of thinking that you hope to instill in your students? You know, that, that go beyond just um, the specific topics that you're teaching? Yeah. What are some of the things that are most important to you to you know, there get across? There are two that come to mind. Um, and one of them is maybe best summed up, in, and I'm probably going to butcher the quote, but it's Alexander Pope. He was like, I think he was like a 1700s essayist, like poetic essayist or whatever. He has this, um, he wrote a bunch of criticism and things like that. And also I think he wrote some poetry. I don't remember the poetry. <laughs> but he said um, something along the lines of, and I, I think this is a paraphrase, um, a little bit of education is a da dangerous thing. Drink deep or not at all. Um, drink deep or not at all. Drink deep or not at all. Okay. And and his basic idea was that, I mean, I, and I saw this as somebody when I was younger, you know, and we've all met people like this and we've all been this person before too. Yeah, this is resonating. I think I know where you're going. We and have it's a really strong opinion about something we know very little about, <laughs> right? Um, and, and it's better to admit ignorance and not say anything than it is to go and bumble into something, um, at least when it comes to like, I mean, in some ways, you got to fake it till you make it, right? The Hunter S. Thompson thing. I start, I start every class with a Hunter S. Thompson quote. Um, huh. But at the same time, like when it comes to these really, really difficult social problems, like say racism or economics or education um, in general, you know, there's a point in, in our education system as Americans where we get really, really, really good at rationalizing anything we want, but we're not very, very good at rationalizing or, or applying logic to our own ideas. And I think that's what he means. I think most of us, especially myself, I came out of high school and I came out of my first three years of college, super good at arguing with people, but never took the time to apply those arguments or those, those same um, filters of logic to my own arguments. Right. And then once I went back to school and I got a little bit deeper into this and I got a little bit better at it, I started to separate myself from my own ideas and my own thoughts and was able to approach my own thoughts from a, a more critical perspective and basically apply the same rigors that I want other people to, to take in their thinking, the same kind of rigors that I was arguing with my friends over when we were drunk at a bar or something and turn around and be like, oh shit, I haven't been doing that to myself. Like mm. all my ideas are super faulty. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm here pointing faults in everybody else, right? Mm. And so I, I really try to get across to my students the idea that if they're interested in something, if they find something compelling, if they find something to be a good explanation, they should, they should not stop there at that moment where, where that feeling exists. They need to dig deeper and really go past that and look up the problems and, and try to try to break apart the ideas they find compelling, especially if they find them compelling. If some idea resonates with you, you should be distrustful of that. Hmm. Um, you should go deeper and, and figure out why people don't like that idea. And, and usually there are two consequences. You won't believe that idea anymore. And that's a good thing. It was maybe a bad idea in the beginning, or you'll believe it even more and you'll be better able to defend it from others because hmm. you understand the arguments against it. Man, I can see how this has played out for me. You know, like the two examples that come immediately to mind are training and nutrition, like mm -hmm. two of the things I've been most interested in, in teaching myself about. And with both of those topics, those early enlightenments, those early really compelling arguments, you know, those light bulb moments, I just wanted to like shout from the rooftops and let yeah, everyone yeah. know. And then the more I've learned and the more I've experimented on myself and the more I've um, tested things and, and read, you just finally get to a point where you're like, I don't feel comfortable saying anything because this is so complicated. 
Yeah. It's so confusing and I'm so I'm so less sure than I was at the start. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that yeah, that's that really strikes home. You know, I, I read a lot of um Zen Buddhist literature and I'm I'm not a religious person and and I'm not an atheist either necessarily. I wouldn't uh, be comfortable with that label, but I really find a lot of inspiration from Zen in particular. Um for for a variety of reasons, but they have this concept of the Satori, which is like these little enlightenments, at least this is my interpretation of it. I might be getting it wrong. Somebody who knows better might be able to correct me, but this is the way that I've used this concept where there are these moments where you, you know, you have like a flash of insight, something that, and, and, and oftentimes they're, they're worth inspecting and they might be truthful too. Um, but I think for me in my life, and I'm, this might be true of other people, I've often taken these small flashes of insight, these small Satori's as like the end result, mm. like enlightenment itself. Um, yeah, I found and, the answer. Yeah, and, and 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 Zen Buddhism is full of these warnings about being careful of that there's always another mountain peak. There's always more. There's, it's never enough. Hmm. Uh, and it, and you're never if you think you found enlightenment, chances are you're at one of these false peaks. Um, and I, I find that to be applicable into almost everything that's worth thinking about. Yeah, you know that if you think you figured something out, there's probably something that you maybe didn't consider. There's more to be. There's more to think about it. Hmm. Um, there's one other thing that I try to f- get across to my students and, yeah. and I do this in a variety of ways and it's, um, I can't remember who made the quote or who, whose quote this is, but it's something about, um, a true education or the sign of a true education is to be able to entertain an idea without believing it. Hmm. And so that's for me, what that means is, okay, say, you know, I've had some, I had my first semester teaching in, um, in, uh, mammoth i had two neo-nazi students straight up neo-nazis like absolutely neo-nazis one of them wrote an essay about why nazism is the best political system and economic system another one would bring mein Kampf to class to read um hitler's book like straight neo-nazis and it was really easy to you know they would raise their hand they'd say things in class they'd want to talk after class and it was really easy to want to just straight up dismiss them you know and just completely and utterly be like and that's what we would normally do right because they're racist (laughs) number one and number two they're nazis (laughs) like if there's ever been in somebody it's okay to punch it's a nazi right (laughs) but i worked really hard to spend time talking to them after class and really trying to dig out their ideas and understand why they believed what they believed you know and that didn't mean that i was going to become a nazi but what it did mean was that i understood their perspective and i could better discuss it with them and maybe Hmm. i hope lead them a little bit away from that personally because um it's not my job as a teacher to really guide anybody anywhere in their thinking, but I think guiding away from Nazism is probably okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think most of us would agree with that. Yeah. So I try to get my students to understand that, you know, just because you're currently enamored with an idea doesn't mean that you will always be enamored with that idea. Just because something really, just because you read Jordan Peterson and he really stuck out to you doesn't mean that in 10 years it's, it's going to make any more sense to you. It doesn't hmm. mean that it's necessarily a good idea that you should really think through things and it's okay to think through them rigorously um, even if you don't think they're interesting or worth believing, like flat earth or something. It can be a lot of fun to think about this stuff. I had a student give a speech on flat earth that was just fantastic. Um, and he didn't believe it at all himself. Yeah. You know, and there's actually a lot of value, I think, in in entertaining ideas that are the opposite of yours um, and realizing that you're, you're not going to be tainted by that idea necessarily. Um, ideas can take hold, I think, and you do need to defend yourself to a degree, I guess. Um, you know, they, that's, I was raised to think that a little bit in the church, I guess, which is, I'm not sure how I feel about that now, but, um, I think it's okay. And I try to get my students to think that it's, it's good to look at the opposite perspective and look at the other side and really dig deep into the other side. Cause again, either you're going to get your mind changed, which is maybe a good thing. Cause then obviously the other idea was better, or you're going to be better prepared to defend your perspective mm-hmm. in the future, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing how triggered and threatened we are when our ideas get 
challenge like that. Yeah. You know? Like how reluctant we are to to do that. I feel like we'd it'd be so much easier for all of us to have love and empathy and compassion for one another if we were better practicing that. Yeah, and I think I think part of it, you know, I and I was one of these people when I was um religious, you know, I was very much like trying to stay away from these things that would cause me to backslide and sin or whatever, mm. you know. And, <laughs> and um and I came I th- from a religious background too. Yeah, and so you you kind of yeah. know how it feels. You yeah, know? that's it's, interesting. A lot of my adult life has been reconciling the differences between <laughs> me and now and and me then. Um, <laughs> but you, I, sometimes I think that our like you called it being triggered by these other ideas. Sometimes I think that just is a lack of faith in our own ideas. You mm. know, I believe that good ideas will win out, and that good faith discussion is a powerful tool and maybe the best tool we have. Like Sam Harris says, the best tool we have for civilization. Um, and to to increase the access and the the purview of civilization, but also to keep it going, and so it doesn't explode on us. Because I like civilization. I like rock climbing. I like literature. <laughs> Only exists with civilization. You know, one really good example um, for me, and like one personal experience for me that that really hones in this is when I was a senior in high school. I took like an advanced writing course because I was I just I got into that, and I was always been an okay writer. Um, and I had this teacher, Mr. Ruff. Well, years later, I actually was teaching next to him at the CSUB, which is kind of fun. Mm. Um, and he wanted us to write an editorial, so an opinion-based essay, because we were going through the rhetorical modes. Um, and he wanted us to write on something that was in the news. And at that time, I couldn't vote yet because I was 17, but at that time, uh, gay marriage was up for a uh, vote in California. Um, and it ended up losing this time. At, at that time, it was 2004, 2003, somewhere in there. And I was opposed to gay marriage as a Christian. That's, that was my position back then. So he actually like asked us to write down what we were going to write about and what our position was. And so he actually knew what we had intended. And then he told us to write the opposite perspective. So I had to write an essay arguing pro-gay marriage hmm. um, from the perspective as a Christian being anti-gay marriage. And I convinced myself through that process that my position was untenable in a state that is supposed to be non-religious and not and supposed to be a secular state, right? Wow. And so I actually came out of that being still a Christian at that point, but pro-gay marriage from a civil sense. And that really taught me the difference between my religious ideas and the, my civil obligations. You hmm. know? And the fact that I could, I mean, it was just an eye-opening experience <laughs> right there, you know, like, and actually That's digging incredible. into this idea from the opposite perspective had a tangible change in my life yeah. and my perspectives and the way that I treated others for that matter. <laughs> so that lesson, I, I try to think about that and think about Mr. Ruff and what he did there um, and try to hopefully do similar things with my students and help them uh, maybe fine-tune their their perspectives a little Hmm. bit so can we summarize those two points so the first one was drink deep or not at all yeah drink deep or not at all and then the the second one the second one was the mark of a true education is the ability to entertain ideas without believing them Hmm. man those are those are two great stickers right there right i know i know (laughs) i got to make more i'm gonna be just filled with stickers (laughs) well you just mentioned some of your writing i want to get to your writing and i want to get to this training book that you've Mm -hmm. written but let's talk a little bit about your own climbing okay um I guess first, so you've been on the road for the past year. Yeah, off and on. Yeah, when did you guys hit the road? So we planned a year off. Okay. um, And we were supposed to end in May of last year when my my job ended teaching. Okay. And then the pandemic hit and everything went to hell. Yeah, you Um, were going to go to Rocklands for the summer. Going to Rocklands, that would have been my fifth time. Um, Steps four time. One of the benefits of being a teacher is summer's off. Um, and so none of that could happen. We were hoping to go to Europe this spring, had all this money saved up, which, you know, we haven't spent any of it, which is, I guess, a nice uh, silver lining. 
Uh, but yeah, so we've been off and on for a year, the best that we can, because it's a little weird ethically traveling during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're in Waco right now, obviously. And in the beginning, it was much different because we had much less knowledge about what was okay and how dangerous things were. Mm -hmm. So we ended up staying in Bishop a little longer. We got lucky and had a, um, a house, long-term house sitting gig. Cause Steph and I lived on public land for the four years that we were in Bishop. Oh, wow. So we've been, I mean, if you count that as being on the road, um, we lived in a van for a year and then we bought an 18 foot trailer okay. that we would move every month from these various um, clandestine areas in the Sierra. Um, so we haven't actually had like a fridge or a shower <laughs> or a regular shower at least, um, or even a bathroom really. We didn't use our bathroom in the trailer because we didn't want to have to go dump. Yeah. Um, for, yeah, <laughs> almost five years now. Wow. Yeah. We've been really fairly committed to the outdoor life. Yeah, yeah. Um, which yeah. has been really special. And it shows in your climbing accomplishments. Oh, definitely. Thanks, thanks. Yeah. yeah. But that's super cool. Yeah, we've been, so we've been trying to travel and, and one of the goals with this trip was um, as a teacher, I get a lot of time off, but mm. anywhere that's kind of fall or spring based, like Leavenworth is a really good example. We can't really climb in the dead of winter there. Mm -hmm. That's when I have time off as a school. So I, we really wanted to take the opportunity to visit some of these places like Leavenworth, like Joe's, um, like Roy, say, or the Southeast that are a bit better in the shoulder seasons when we're both going to be in school and mm. working in schools mm. um, for the rest of our lives. <laughs> and so, yeah. Got it. What have been some of the some of the highlights that you didn't expect, you know, having having to pivot with COVID and cancel some of your trips would have been some of the best things that have come out of that this past year. It's been, it's been, I mean, there's been a lot climbing wise, you know, like the quarantine training actually turned out to be really, really good for both of us. Huh. Like having this um, training. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they closed the gym in Bishop. I immediately built a wall, like a, a 45 degree eight by 12 training wall. And just like made Where? some holds in. Um, so we we had the house sitting gig at that yeah. point. So in the front yard. Okay. This house sitting gig. And uh, <laughs> nice. the people who own the house were okay with it. And it was um, completely freestanding. So we could take it apart if they, if they weren't cool with it. Is it still there? Um, no, I actually sold. I ended up selling it okay. right afterwards. And it had um, had some holds I made. and got managed to scrounge together some holds from an old wall I had that I. And so we trained for an extra couple months because we weren't able to travel. Mm -hmm. And so it was like the longest sustained period of training I've ever had. Because hmm. um, the season before that too, I had gotten kind of demotivated on some of my projects in Bishop, basically just didn't send anything, and except for one, I guess. And so I ended up tra starting training a little earlier than I expected, trained a little longer than I expected, and, and we came out of it both stronger than we'd, we'd ever been. Hmm. Um, so that was really interesting. Like I, I feel like I learned a lot. And also because we had limited uh, facilities, right? I didn't have a campus board. I only had like a problem solver hangboard that you can hang from the rafter or whatever. Uh -huh. um, it forced me to really get creative with the training and rethink the training and, and simplify, which I think actually helped a lot. It huh. made me stronger. It got rid of some of the other things that I think were not necessarily hurting, but weren't the best use of my time. Um, which has been super interesting. Interesting. I definitely want to circle back to that. Yeah. You know, some of the things that you've removed and another and thing that's been interesting is I guess I didn't anticipate, I didn't really realize how much social interaction I get from climbing until it wasn't available when COVID hit. Mm. And that's been something that I've actually in the last month have really had to, I've struggled a lot with here in Waco and have just turned the corner on like three days ago, personally, I feel like. Um, and it, I've realized that like, the social interaction between teaching and climbing, that was my social life in a lot of ways. Hmm. And now both of those have kind of been ripped out. And it's made me realize that, you know, sending is great. I want to keep sending. But it, it, sending by yourself is less fun than sending with somebody else there, you know, <laughs> and somebody there to, to, to enjoy it with you or to watch send as well. Yeah. Um, and to support or to support you and to share that those experiences with. Like so much of us now, we, you know, have to avoid climbing with each other at these climbing areas. It's the right thing to do really in a lot of ways. 
Um, and that's been hard for me. And, and so kind of learning how much energy and happiness I gain from those social interactions that I'm not this island of a human who's okay on his own. That's been like a big lesson for me in the last like few weeks. That resonates with me too. <clears throat> I've tried to, I've spent a lot of time in my adult life, in my, in my climbing life, thinking that being a hermit and, and, you know, trying to be a climbing robot was the best way to go. And, um, it's never really worked. It's always kind of backfired in yeah, in one way. And that realization has creeped in time and time again. We're like, oh, no, you really are a, so a social being. And that's such an important part of of even remembering why climbing matters to begin with, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's I started climbing when I was 23. And it, it really, in a lot of ways, I feel like saved me. Um, you know, it's kind of hmm. cliche, but it really, really hit me. And at, for a long time, I thought it was the climbing itself, the physical activity. I've always had trouble sleeping. I've always been kind of high strung and climbing is like an exhausting sport, which is great because I can go to sleep at night. <laughs> um, but now I'm thinking less about that and, and a lot more about the, the guys who taught me how to climb, the people who got me my first climbing job, like the guy, this guy who, you know, he gave me my first harness and my first pair of shoes because I couldn't afford them back then like like those connections i'm starting to realize maybe are what actually brought me out of the path i was going to in life this kind of like basically i was doing a lot of drugs and brought me back into something a little bit more uh, social hmm. you know it wasn't actually the climbing and it wasn't to a degree it wasn't even nature a lot of the time i thought it was nature because nature is really important to me being outdoors is really important to me um and I, that's continues to be important to me, but the people you know i'd kind of taken that for granted before hmm. all this and so it's been a big lesson for me huh yeah so that's interesting. So you started pretty late. You started at 23. 23, almost 24. Okay. You've been yeah. climbing for 11 years? Something like that. Yeah, 11, 11, going on 12 or something. Yeah. Um, and that's amazing. You've made incredible progress. I mean, I was looking at your, I was creeping on the internet last night and you've done well over 100 double digit boulders and mm -hmm. up to V13. Um, you've done a few of them. You just did one recently. You did Diabolic. I did Diabolic, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, the, you know, Congrats. the grade on that one gets, gets all hard problems get get argued with the grade. Okay. Um, but I don't argue with myself. I'm pretty proud of it. I'm pretty happy. <laughs> and uh, that's the nice. one I wanted the most this trip, you know? Oh, cool. I mean, it suits me really well, too. It's just like made for me. It's kind of my mantra is train my weaknesses, climb my strengths. It's like the, the way that I like to go with things. Yeah. In, in what way is it made for you? Like what's um, the... it's, well, it's got a knee bar. I love knee bars. Okay. I find myself like pretty good at knee bars. Um, it's also really wide climbing from insecure. And so it's, it's more, instead of being like finger strength based, it tends to be, it's a little bit more tension based. Okay. And I tend to be a bit better at that. And there's the crux revolves around a compression move, which is my jam. Mm. Um, so yeah. And it's steep. I like steep stuff because the holds tend to be bigger. Yeah. Yeah. And the crimping is hard for me. Um, but yeah, that one was the one I wanted most. And, and, and it, it was a, that was an interesting day too, where like, you know, I went to it and I just was doing terrible and it was super hot and super still and awful. And I was got in a shitty mood and was getting, you know, I've, I've, I've usually had a pretty strong mental game, I feel like. And then this last year, all the stress of 2020 and the pandemic and, and all that stuff has really weared on me a little bit. And I find myself getting frustrated more often than I normally would. And so I, we left the Boulder problem, went to Steph's, uh, Steph was working El Teco and I like took a moment. I was like, okay, just try not to be a complete ass. Like try to, try to enjoy her process. Um, and so I got out of the funk a little bit and then the wind picked up and we went back and I sent a couple of tries. Got, it cooled off. Yeah, it was a special day again. Kind of like turbulence. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm, it, it sounds like a theme, but it sounds like those are That's two this of the, year's theme. I don't those know are two of the exceptions to, yeah. the, to the norm. Yeah. And I mean, every year is a little different. The year before I was, I would project something and then, you know, take a couple of days off of it and then go back to it and do a first try. That was like the thing that happened the year before, which was huh. really bizarre. It's never happened to me in my life. <laughs> Normally I'm like 20 sessions on everything, you know? Interesting. Yeah. 
but um but yeah i started i started climbing a little late and 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 i feel really i don't know i don't know if lucky is the right word um but i've gotten more out of it as far as like sending wise than i really anticipated at the beginning because hmm. i was not a good climber at the beginning and out of all my friends i started climbing with like four or five friends i was the the least physically capable interesting uh, for sure but i'm the only one who still climbs Wow. So I think maybe a testament to consistency. Yeah. Type of thing, you know? Yeah. So I was reading through this training book that you wrote last night and stumbled into a part where you were talking about Pachi Usobiaga. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Watching him in progression. Can you tell me about that and and the connection that you had to watching that? So I started climbing. It was kind of a weird trick, um, like accident, complete accident. I didn't even know there was a climbing gym in my town. And there really isn't. It's a small gym inside of a bike shop, like a large bike shop. (laughs) That is just a complete accident as well. Like it should never existed. The owner hates the climbing gym, still hates it, but he's like, he's he's invested now. (laughs) Where was Um, this again? In Bakersfield. Okay. Not known for its climbing. Uh, Not (laughs) known for its climbing community either. (laughs) And so I started climbing with a bunch of people and, um, and at first, it was really just a way for me to spend time outdoors, be physically active, and still smoke cigarettes, drink beer, and do drugs. Like, that was my appeal to it, is all <laughs> these guys were loved to party, but they were still athletes. And I really, like, I was coming from a party scene, and I was really down the well of psychedelics at that point in my life. Um, maybe potentially going off the bad end of that type of thing, you know, mm. personally. Um, and so I really got into climbing, and it really just struck a chord, and I, I just needed something. I was unemployed at the time. This was right after the 2008 financial crisis. It was a mess. My dad's company had gone under, so I didn't have like my normal safety net like I normally did. Mm. My family was losing money and borrowing money from me. It was it was really scary, and climbing gave me this this kind of way out. And and but it became pretty clear to me that you know I played soccer growing up. I was not well prepared for climbing. I was easily the weakest out of all my friends. Um, the only thing I had going for me at the time was that I was. I could be pretty heady when it came to the trad stuff. We did a lot of trad back then. Okay. So I ended up leading a lot and I don't do that anymore because I've injured myself several times and now I'm afraid. Oh shit. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I remember really wanting to get stronger and, and just kind of almost despairing at the fact that like, I'm too tall, I'm too big. You know what I mean? Like I, mm. I, I don't really fit a lot of the guys who were strong at that play in Bakersfield and the strongest guy in Bakersfield, you know, maybe doesn't even hold a candle to anybody anymore. This was t- a decade ago. Um, it just, you know, most of the climbers you see online are kind of 5'10 or so, right? And they're like light and strong. And yeah, or weighed. even 5'8", 5'7". Yeah, five, very seven. gymnast bodies in yeah. a lot of ways, you know? And, and I'm this tall, lanky, you know, thunder-thighed soccer player dude. <laughs> um, and I remember watching Progression and, and listening to Patsy talk and, and him talking about how he's not the most talented, but his talent is his mind and his talent is being able to work hard and, and suffer. Mm. And I was like, I can be that guy. You know, I might not be physically talented, but I can I can separate myself from my body and I can force my body into this thing that maybe will perform better. Um, and it seems to have, I mean, for me, it's worked pretty well. Yeah. Um, I, I've gotten I've gotten lucky. And yeah, so I really drew a lot of inspiration from, from, you know, a lot of our culture and a lot of the culture I grew up with, we were really focused on talent and like this kind of inborn talent. We love to see people who are successful fast. Um, and Pesci's narrative was very different. It was somebody who had to work his ass off to get where he was and to, to be equal to the others around him, you know, hmm. and that really resonated with me. Hmm. Um, I, especially in sports, I had always been passable at sports. Like I could snowboard, water ski. I was never that good. I was pretty good at soccer. Um, but any sport I could pick up and play. Okay. Except for climbing. It was terrible at climbing. <laughs> and it was the first time I'd ever really like jumped into a sport and just couldn't even hang. Hmm. at all like like projecting five eight on my first day climbing yeah you know and and it took me a full year to do my first v4 outdoors and a year of climbing like a lot like four or five times a week wow you know it's not like i was you know once here once there 
um, I was not good at this. Yeah. Um, and so the, the idea of that there's a path other than talent to, you know, my goals as a climber really resonated. Um, Give me a sense of your progression and what, what that's looked like. As far as climbing goes? Yeah. Um, so actually, I, I, when, when I started climbing, for some reason, V like when I started bouldering, really, V13 was like a goal of mine. Um, I, I don't know where that came from, but I was like, I want to do a V13 one day. I think it was just like watching a bunch of Sharma videos and the dosage stuff. You know, that was like kind of the hardest thing in those videos that was named at least. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I spent the first four years of climbing or so. I did a lot of different types of climbing. Like my climbing, they were more weekend trips and we'd go sport climb and do a bunch of easy rope climbing stuff and top roping. And I did a lot of trad too. A lot of the guys who taught me how to climb were trad climbers. So I climbed in the needles and dome rock, um, climbed in Yosemite a bit. And... And so I would like the first four years, I wasn't super focused on getting stronger and wasn't focused on training at all. Um, that, that wasn't a thing. Climbing was still kind of, um, you know, going out and having adventure days, which is, which is a lot of fun in its own way. But I w was also at the same time getting frustrated when I couldn't do certain boulder problems or couldn't do certain uh, climbs. Mm. And so at some point, right around V5, when I was climbing like V5-ish, um, right before I was trying to do my first non-dino V6, I'm good at dinos and yeah. I like dinos a lot. Is this disenuros? Yeah, 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 yeah. Is that in the, the yeah, yeah? So I wanted um, right around the time I was trying to do Jusineros, which is this beautiful, wonderful line. Um, I realized Where is that it? I needed. It's in Pine Mountain, okay, um, which which is near Ojai in Southern California. Okay, it's a wonderful place. Um, not a ton of bouldering, but really nice sandstone and just a great hang overall. And, and important to my heart. That's like the place where I decided to be a teacher on my 25th birthday and all this stuff. Wow. So it's like really like sits as like a, this place in my in my in my being. Um, I finally started to train and I had no idea what I was doing because there was just, you know, at that point, I think DPM was a magazine, Dead Point mm. Mag, and, mm -hmm. and, they, and you just didn't have the wealth of training information that you have now out there, which maybe was better actually in some ways because it can be a little confusing now. Um, but that's when I started training and, and really started focusing on, on trying to get stronger, although I was still doing a lot of sport climbing and a lot of trad climbing at that time. And that, that basically precipitated this, you know, this real time of, trial and error in my training, really trying different things with my nutrition, really trying different things with my training, really trying to figure out what worked for me. Um, cause what worked for other people just didn't really work that well for me. And then there was also some ups and downs. I did my first V10 in Durango, Colorado when I was, um, I think 26 or 27, but then I didn't do another one for three years. And that huh. was around the three years that I was a vegetarian and really like getting injured a lot and, and having a lot of trouble with keeping fit and strong and, and, and recovering. Interesting. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't do another one for 10 years. And then Right around the time that I moved to Bishop, like the year before I moved to Bishop in 2016, I, you know, I had done a trip to Australia where I was sport climbing because I had a broken heel, so I couldn't really do anything else. I broke my pinky in Australia. It's all jacked up now. Oh, whoa. Yeah. <clears throat> Look at a, that thing. Yeah. So I, I broke my heel when a top rope in a gym failed and I decked. No um, kidding. And broke my heel four days before I went to Australia. Went to Australia, spent a week in the city, kind of waiting for my climbing partner to get out of school. Went to the Grampians, broke my pinky on a trad fall on the first climb, the first outdoor <laughs> oh climb God. of the trip. Climbed oh, the man. rest of the month, and and she worked. She like my climbing partner was a was a med student. She managed to get me some Vicodin, and I would just take that stuff at night to sleep because my pinky hurt so bad. Wow. Um, and then I got back, and I got an X-ray. I didn't have health insurance. This is pre-Obamacare. Got an X-ray at the school. And it was all jacked up and had fused all wrong. Um, it had broken long ways and through the joint, like split in half. Oh my God. And it fused together. And he told me I needed surgery, but I couldn't afford surgery. So I had a friend who was an ortho tech 
Um, his job at the hospital was set bones. So I went to his house, chugged some beer, and he broke the pinky for me and put it in a cast. <laughs> and it's still bent. I can't like hang one-handed with this very well because it doesn't quite reach sometimes. Yeah. I used to want to do some. Yeah. So it's, your pinky, it, it almost looks like just the very the very last knuckle is like bent at a 45 degree angle or something like yeah. you got a little it hook bends, on your... it bends to the inside yeah yeah it bends inward yeah it's not normal looking yeah um and it's probably i went back to the doctor and he was pissed that i had it taken care of in that manner but once i told him you know i got a little mad myself because it's an economic issue which it shouldn't be but mm. it was he, he basically told me they're gonna have to probably take it when i'm older like amputate the pinky because arthritis will be bad in it oh wow um but that might have been the case anyways um, after that, I did a trip to South America where I did, um, or I did a trip in Thailand where I did sport climbing and then South America where I did a bunch of, uh, a bunch of trad in the fray and, and did some sport climbing. And, but after that, so that was 2015, I sold my trad rack, got rid of the rope and started focusing on bouldering and started focusing on really, really trying hard in bouldering and really wanted to do my first, uh, V11, my first V12, like really wanted to push my, my boundaries and, and start to tick off some of these lifeless boulder problems that I that I want to do one day. Um, and for some reason, the boulder problems always appeal to me more than the sport climbs. Like I have a list of life boulder problems I want to do, but I don't really have sport climbs in that way. Hmm. So for whatever reason, bouldering stuck. And and so it's been the last five or six years that I've really focused and tried to hone my training down and try to really better understand it. And that's also been the f- four years, the last four years I've done, you know, more of the hard stuff. That's hard for me at least. Yeah. Um, and, and really, uh, I think progressed a lot in these last several years. Yeah personally okay so yeah i was gonna ask about disenuros so it's a v6 it was your first v6 and it sounds like i mean you, you just described that your training was haphazard and you didn't know what you were doing but it sounds like whatever you did it worked at least enough for you to crush this v6 and yeah i think you even climbed it again because it just felt so good yeah yeah um what did that early experiment with training look like and i'd love to hear how that's evolved over the years and ultimately what led to wanting to write this book so the the earliest iterations of training for me um i would bring these little note cards to the gym that would have like my session planned out on them and that was like a big revelation that was one of these satories right where like planning a session (laughs) and not just going in climbing and based on what you feel like right that was something completely different and really helped but i would go in and i would climb for two hours and then i would hang board and then i would do some pull-ups and then i might do some core stuff um, but there was no real rhyme or reason to why I was doing what I was doing and when I was doing it. Mm. Um, and I, and I realized eventually that, you know, I'd climb for two hours and I'd get caught up in a boulder problem that one of my friends had set some st- stupid buddy of mine. Right. Um, <laughs> and I would end up, you know, doing this one boulder problem that maybe focused on like a right hand crimp. By the time I got to the hangboard, my right arm was exhausted and my left arm would be fine. And I had this really like this heavy imbalance happening. Hmm. I also didn't do anything with antagonists and I didn't take care of my nutrition at all. Um, at that point, I was, you know, living, as ch- living. this was when I lived in Thousand Oaks in the parking lot of the climbing gym, the Boulder Dash climbing gym. Down there. <laughs> I only worked there for five weeks and then I ended up leaving. Um, but that was the right around the time that I really wanted to start focusing. But I was trying to live off of less than $10 a day. I mean, Taco Bell, huh. bananas from Trader Joe's is not healthy um, <laughs> at Taco all. Taco Bell and so, bananas. Yeah. And I was still drinking a ton, you know, so, and alcohol. so very one-sided just in the training, not in the nutrition half, which I think is a very important side of it. Mm. Hadn't taken over my entire life yet. 
Um, and eventually I started to realize that if I wanted to send outdoors, I didn't need to think about sending indoors as much. And that's why I was doing those long sessions indoors before I would hangboard and before I would do my pull-ups and stuff. Because if I did the hangboarding and the pull-up first, then I wouldn't send the pink boulder problem in the corner uh. and that would mess with my ego. But then I wasn't getting stronger and I wasn't sending outdoors. So eventually I switched over to... And, and honestly, just doing anything structured helped at all, for sure. And that's why I sent Disaneros. But eventually, I started to move the pieces around a little bit, started to feel a little bit more about the different protocols of hanging. This is also a time when I did a lot of um, um, repeaters and not a lot of max hangs. For me, changing to max hangs made a big difference. Hmm. Um, focusing on the hangboarding and the pulling exercises, I call them like isolation exercises, the things that are you know, much more balanced in the gym on the hangboard and on the bar or on the rings that I think apply much more directly outdoors rather than, you know, doing the run and jump boulder problems in the, in the, mm. in the gym that are set. So changing, changing my emphasis from indoor climbing to outdoor climbing and then changing my training accordingly um, made a big difference for me. And the training book, wanting to write the training book was, it was also an accident. So I told you this <laughs> yesterday, I, I self-published sci-fi. Yeah. And when I turned like <laughs> Love 31 it. or yeah, when I went around the time I turned 31 or 32, my New Year's resolution that year was like, I always have like a climbing New Year's resolution. I want to do this grade or this many of a grade or this boulder problem or whatever, um, depending on what it is that year. But I also have been trying to do more like artistic ones or other types like um, this last year's resolutions I've, I've committed and I don't have much right now, but I'm going to try to give 10% um, of my income to charity for the rest of my life. That's wow. The we will give pledge. Um, it's like this whole group. Yeah. Um, this effective altruism movement and things like that. I'm plugging it right now because it's important to me at this moment. But that year I wanted to write a novel. I'll link to that. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting and there's a lot of cool stuff. And Sam Harris has good conversations yeah. on his podcast. It rings a bell and it, it must be from him. Yeah. I, yeah. I've heard him, him talk he's about kind of, it. He's big on it now. He's taking the, the pledge too. Yeah. Which means more coming from him because he makes a lot more money. <laughs> but um, so... But I knew that I wasn't ready to write a sci-fi book, like writing 80,000 words. I think my first sci-fi book turned out to be 80,000 words. It's like, it's a lot of work. Um, mm -hmm. And I wasn't prepared. And so I, I knew I needed to start writing. And I also needed to start showing people my writing because that's also frightening. <laughs> and, and so I came up with two ways of doing this. I started a blog um, that was all climbing-based stuff. And a lot of those articles, I've taken the blog down since then. Um, a lot of those articles ended up in the appendix of the training book. Okay. Um, and the other way was to write a training book. I was just figuring, I think it's a long project. It's a big project. It turned out to be huge. It's like 300 pages or something. <laughs> um, yeah. Pages. And it, it was just a way for me to practice that. But it also helped me really to think about the training, what I was doing, why I was doing it. And I also just wanted to help other people who maybe couldn't afford a trainer or something and, and give them this thing that, you know, is not a silver bullet in any way, shape or form. I don't think there is a silver bullet, but it's the information I think is useful. And, and many people have found it useful, at least as a stepping stone. Um, and so that was the goal. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's incredibly comprehensive. It goes way beyond just exercises and programming. I mean, there's like sections on attitude and the mindset and some of it's pretty metaphysical. Yeah. Gets into I like, like that stuff. The will and, and whatever Sanders else. Again. Yeah. That, that stuff, it means a lot to me. Yeah. Um, and that was the goal though, was to write something that somebody could, cause I had bought several training books and they're, they're all quite good. And from people way more experienced than I am and way more qualified and credible than I am, um, mm. in my opinion. And, but oftentimes they they took a very much a um, you know you don't need to know all this stuff approach so just listen to this thing kind of approach right they they often seemed a little bit bare bones and and didn't get as deep as I wanted into the mentality or into the theory behind it or why you do what you do sometimes they had lots of exercises but no information on how to structure a workout mm. sometimes they were super geared towards sport climbing um, and not towards bouldering at all 
or they had like a small section on bouldering or something like that. I, there was always something for me lacking in all of them. So I wanted to write a book that somebody could read from beginning to end and might actually be an enjoyable reading experience. Um, and after they read them, they would have the tools they need to indefinitely develop their own training plans hmm. and not rely on somebody else necessarily. And, and not just know how to do it, but maybe a little bit of the why you would do it this way. Um, that was kind of the goal. So that's why the book is organized the way it is and, and starts where it starts and moves up from there. It starts with the theory and then it goes to the phasing and then it goes to the individual exercises and all that stuff. Mm. You know, from broad to narrow is the goal. Yeah. How similar, is this still what you do basically? Like... Pretty similar. I've made some changes. Okay. Um, I've simplified my training a little bit. Uh, this this book included, because um, this is the second edition. I, I did a first edition and then I added some stuff afterwards when I got some feedback from people on Reddit. Okay. Um. And the second edition includes like a section on intuitive training where you don't really plan things out as much. You do these blocks. I got that from a buddy, Matthias, who's Australian climber. Okay. Yeah. Um, Non-linear. Yeah. The non-linear training. There we go. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Um, So I do, yeah, I basically do something extremely similar still. Um, I've changed my hangboard protocols a little bit. I do less hangs, but more, or less um, grip sizes, but more hangs of each one. If okay. That makes any sense? Um, I've put a more emphasis on VMAX, like the actual just trying hard. Mm. You know, I, I read an article talking about the Japanese training team training, the Japanese like national team training, and what I got out of the article is they basically go in and they try as hard as possible every time they go to the gym. Whoa. Um, and I was really I, that was interesting because you don't you know a lot of the training books I had read said it was okay to like leave a little on the table so you're red arrested for next time or whatever, and something about the fact that it was the Japanese training team and the Japanese climbers are incredible. Um, and also yeah, probably crushing. some sort of weird cultural thing for me, liking Japanese culture in general and the samurai culture in yeah. general, which is ridiculous, but it is what it is. I want to come back to that too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just was like, okay. I'm a, and, and also just the idea that their training is them causing themselves to suffer a lot. They just go in and they suffer and they work really, really hard. And that, of course, appealed to me a lot. Is this like, do they go all out in the sense that they do, they thrash themselves or does that just mean like maximum intensity? Like, maximum intensity. So like limit bouldering. So if it, yeah, limit bouldering on the hangboard, on the pull, it seems like everything they did, at least that's what I got out of it. And it was a very short article. So I was probably filling in a lot of gaps with okay. my own uh, prejudices <laughs> okay. or whatever, yeah, um, or my own ideas and conceptions. Um, it just seems like they just do everything. They just go at it really hard and they try really hard and they and they, they, they don't leave anything on the table. Well, it seems like that's such a consistent theme across so many of the best outdoor boulderers these days. Yeah, yeah. You know, like when I think of Daniel Woods and Dave Graham and Jimmy Webb and I, I mean, I don't know. I haven't spent time with these guys and I, I'd love to interview all of those guys, but... Um, but I haven't. And, but it seems that they just limit project all the time. Yeah. Like that's almost exclusively what they do. And, and I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if they mix in volume. I mean, they're so strong that everywhere they go, they're going to get volume just because there's very few things that are hard enough for them. Yeah. But it, it seems like they limit project just about every day. I remember reading, um, there was a while back, there was a video like four years ago, the video of Jimmy Webb flashing everything in Rocklands. <laughs> absolutely incredible. Um, uh-huh. All my projects that I had. <laughs> the, and, and it was just out of control. And I remember reading a little blurb. I don't know where it was, but he basically said that two months prior to that, he went to the gym every day and climbed his hardest every day. Wow. Um, which is probably a lot more than most of us can handle. Yeah. You know, one like thing- literally that, every day? Yeah, that's what it said, every day. I don't, I mean, again, I, this was like a short Instagram blurb or something. So who knows how much detail he put into it. Right. right. It could have been an exaggeration. Um but you know, so my sister. This this is gonna this will come back. I promise. My <laughs> youngest sister um, 
she went into gymnastics. She was good. She was very good at gymnastics. She she's not a gymnast anymore. Um, she's actually quite an inspirational story in her own right, yeah, hmm. in my opinion. But so she was going to be a gymnast. They actually thought that she had potential to be an Olympian. So they pulled her out of school. And I remember she was like eight years old and jacked and like six pack and all. It was frightening. She was just like the buffest little eight to 10 year old I've ever met. This is your life. sister? Yeah, my sister. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how old is she? she? How old is she now? She's 10 years younger than I am. Okay. Oh, no, nine years. Sorry. Yeah, okay. nine years. Um, I'm the oldest <laughs> out of five. And, but she eventually blew both her knees out. Oh. And what I learned, what we learned in talking about this with the coach and stuff like that is that this is how gymnastics works. There's like a survivor bias. Wow. They push these kids crazy hard. And the ones we see in the Olympics are the ones who can survive the training. Interesting. And so to a degree, I think some of the best climbers in the world are people whose bodies are so resistant to the injury and can really take the stress that mm. they put on it, that they can achieve these incredible levels just because of how much they can handle. Mm. Um which is which is insane and, and and maybe not like that resonates board, though but i think yeah. it makes a bit of sense right yeah um because there's a lot of other people that you don't see in the climbing videos that approach their climbing the same way as jimmy webb or daniel woods but they just are injured all the time well, and, and i've <laughs> or, met kids who not kids they're not kids now or, or maybe some of them are kids but you know people who were comp kids and burnt out they mm -hmm. either burnt out emotionally or they or they physically fell apart and they couldn't take it anymore you know like i think that's becoming more and more of a thing and so some of these people that we see who come out of the comp scene and in and jump into the um into the you know the, the global scene of climbing they're the ones who survived they're like the, they're not my sister mm. you know whose knees didn't blow out or fingers didn't blow out you know mm -hmm. um, so there's a bit of survivor bias there when it comes to training from that perspective um, which is interesting and that's not my experience obviously i'm not one of these people who started really young and, and was really talented right. that kind of thing right um but i think my you know my body is i've been active my whole life and my i'm lucky enough genetically that my body is fairly resistant to injury and so i've been able to increase the intensity of my training without stopping and i haven't had to stop for an injury for a long time okay um i haven't had a major injury since i broke my pinky i've had like a few tweaks here and there obviously that happens all the time and i think part of the reason why i haven't is because i've taken a very structured approach to my training and tried really hard to focus more on the hangboard and on the bar than on the climbing because overuse half people i think generally get injured you know trying some weird tweaky boulder problem that's one of their buddies said or something or mm. or doing the same boulder problem a thousand times um the hangboard is nice and ergonomic at least a lot of the new ones are right the yeah. those tension boards and stuff that are really nicely made yeah yeah okay so you've written this training book for free and i'll link to it in the show notes assuming that you're yeah you're, you're okay welcome to that. i was gonna say you're welcome to share it with your with your um listener base perfect yeah but but give me an overview of your program and your training philosophy and, and kind of what you describe in the book so my basic philosophy is that you should have a plan and that the goal is to send outdoors not to send indoors and so that we should as climbers or for myself as a climber um, I should focus on what I think is going to be most applicable directly to climbing outside and worry a lot less about say sending my indoor projects um, they can be useful as a way to get stronger and also climbing's fun that's an important part it should stay fun um but if i don't send the pink one or the moonboard problem or whatever but i do go out of my send phase and i send you know my project outdoors that's worth it that's that's the basic philosophy right there having a plan structuring the training but then also just really focusing on what i think helps the most um in, uh, outside and so for me, that means spending most of my time on the hangboard and on the rings and the bar. 
Hmm. Um, and, and lately, one thing I've added a lot of is a lot of moonboarding, a lot of board training. Um, I haven't okay. had a chance to really like try the tension board and other stuff and kilter board as much. Um, one of the reasons I like the moon board is because the holds are so screwy and gross in a lot of ways <laughs> that they, they mimic outdoor climbing to me, especially in Bishop where everything's kind of like not uniform. Mm. All the crimping and things like that. And I tend to struggle with anything that's like a three finger crimp instead of a four finger crimp. And okay. So I like those yellow holds. Um, and so it, there's a whole chapter that basically explains those points in more detail and explains why, you know, like the idea of um, having a plan and all this stuff and why it's important and privileging the outdoor climbing as opposed to the indoor climbing. Um, and then it goes from there into how to structure a, a single set or how to structure a single session. Um, it might go to phasing next, but we can talk about that in a second. And so I break down a single session into the warm-up phase, which for me is usually half an hour to an hour, at which point I do try to try something hard. Like if I have a moonboard project, I'll give it a couple of goes or something like that and hopefully send before I get too tired. But I, I find it useful to actually approach maximum effort in my warm-up personally. Like mm. Really slowly though. It's getting slower as I get older for sure. <laughs> um, then I go, then I break it into hands. So that's the hangboard or the campus board, um, okay. depending on what you're doing. Um, you'll, and I'll spend, you know, so much time on the hangboard, maybe 45 minutes, but it's max hangs. I, I, I'm a big believer in max hangs personally. Yeah. Do you still do any repeaters or is it all? Not really. Yeah. Um, you know, I did try something in the most recent structure and I, and I'm considering doing a, another edition of my training book, which we can talk about later. Mm -hmm. Um, but one thing I did try based on some things I read about and some things I heard some friends doing was doing like a, a couple weeks of repeaters prior to a max hangs cycle. And, and that actually seemed to be pretty beneficial. Okay. Um, but I did recently only have enough time to do the repeaters. And I kind of wish I would have done more max hangs. Because mm. I don't find the adaption quite there the way that I want it. My fingers feel not quite as strong this trip, even after five weeks of training, as they have in the past. Although I feel pretty strong in general and stronger overall, say. Um, but I'm not having that peak finger strength that I get from a good section of max hangs in, mm. in general. Um, and so you have the hand section and, and the book goes into detail about how to do that. And it also tries to break things down into beginner, intermediate, and advanced. And, and one criticism that I've had lately, um, cause I've been reaching out for suggestions for this next edition is to, is maybe to have something even more beginner than where my beginner starts. Okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, your beginner I think is like V3 to five. Yeah. And that's what I'm calling it. And, and, and the training seems to be, um, that might be my own survivor bias coming in. You know, I come from a background of, of relatively intense training as a goalkeeper, um, you mm. know, where I get soccer balls kicked in my face for two hours straight. <laughs> and then after that, it's training is not so bad. Um, and so I, I need to think a little bit more about how to ease up a little bit to make it less injury prone for people, or, or even just like the mental game, right? If you feel overwhelmed, you're not going to be very successful at completing 90% of your training sessions or whatever. Um, that's one thing that I feel like I have a strength is it's pretty easy for me to go and shut my brain off and do the work and, and hate everything, but really not feel that, you know, <laughs> um, kind of separate my emotions from my, my body. And then you get, and then I always jump in from the hangboard. I always jump into doing um, what I call isolation exercises, anything that emphasizes arm strength. So generally for me, it's pull-ups, um, pull ring rows, weighted pull-ups, one-arm pull-ups, assisted one-arm pull-ups. I'm really a big believer in lock-off training, like uh, one-arm lock-offs. Even if they're assisted, I find personally I find those super useful. That might be because I have really long arms, and so the leverage when it comes to pulling is a little bit more difficult for somebody mm. with a tighter arm base. And then after all that, and usually that's almost an hour right there um, not including the warm-up then so the, the hands and the and the bar and the bars an hour combined sometimes more it just okay. depends on whether you're in the beginner or the advanced um, and again there's lots of rest in between i'm a big believer too of like high intensity for short spurts with like with lots of rest mm -hmm. and then this is specific to bouldering obviously where you're only hanging on you really need to be on the boulder for 20 seconds 45 seconds tops yeah right you know like four to six moves right is is, is the ideal 
Um, so there's differences, obviously, if you want to do more moves or longer boulder problems. Although I also take the Wolfgang Gulick, where if the moves are easier, then you won't need as much endurance anyways. Right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. then I go to do the max hangs. Um, or not maxing, sorry, the, the VMAX, the, the limit bouldering. Okay. Um, and so some people struggle with that mentally because, again, they're accustomed to wanting to perform well on that. And after hangboarding and after doing one-arm pull-ups or whatever, it can be hard getting on the board. Um, but I find that to be valuable in a couple ways. If you're tired, you're going to be a little bit more open to your technique and you're going to really focus mm. on trying to be more efficient, right? Which is really, really good skill to have climbing. Um, you want to be as strong as possible. You want to be as strong as Chris Sharma, but you want to climb like Dave Graham outside, right? You want to be a wizard. And that can really teach you that. Um, for me, it also teaches me to try hard when I'm feeling tired. You know, because sometimes that can be the difference between the single day send or the not single day send. Having to come back to something is really just biting down and doing it. It also, a lot of the times, the beta is just to try harder. Hmm. And coming to, say, the moon board when you're a little bit fatigued, again, being careful for injury can really teach you that wherewithal and that really, like, you know, that grit. Um, sometimes if my fingers are feeling really, really tired, I, uh, will just focus on big moves on really good holds and just make it into like a power session just to avoid hmm. uh, hurting myself. If my fingers are feeling strong and I want to work on crimps, I'll crimp down really hard on this VMAX session. Okay. That usually goes for about an hour. Um, sometimes longer depending on how I'm feeling. And I've been increasing the length personally, um, for the last year or two. Oh, this is also where I'll include, uh, especially for newer climbers, just some drills, you know, like the lock-off drill is one that I find really useful, the hang-around drill, uh, the feet-walking drill, quiet feet, whatever, the skill-based drills after VMAX. Yes. Can you describe some of those? Like, let's start with the lock-off drill. So, the lock-off drill was one that I really like. Again, this might be specific to being a taller climber. I've always found lock-offs to be hard. Okay. Basically, you pick a boulder problem uh, well underneath your max, and you... and it, the the steeper personally I think is better um, but it doesn't really matter you do whatever is in your range and it takes some practice to figure out what is the right uh, difficulty for you and you climb the boulder problem but you pause before you grab every hold so if you do a move to a hold you you hover on it for a breath or two the longer the harder and then you grab it and then you do it again and there's a couple benefits to that number one it's strength building right you're locking off so it's going to build strength at the same time in order to lock off certain positions you have to find the right body position Mm. Um, and so that really teaches you how to use your body efficiently as well and and that made a big difference on my ability to like crank down on the hold to my nipples and reach way past as far as i can Mm. because sometimes the difference between reaching the hold is like you know you can crank to your ear but often you have to take it past the shoulder right yeah and that's hard for people and that hover drill really helps with that um another one that i like um is you get on something really steep and you cut feet every hand move. Okay. And force you to bring your... So it's kind of a core workout that's brought in there, but it also kind of teaches you this dynamic movement if you struggle with dynamic movement. My girlfriend struggles with that a lot. Okay. She's incredibly strong. Um, but when she has to jump, it, it's really hard for her, but she's getting better. Okay. So the hang around drill can really, really help. Um, I've heard those also <clears throat> called uh, foot flyaways. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of drills mentioned in, in the in the book. I don't remember them all anymore. But I think the... Like, personally, the hover drill is the one that I like the most or the lock-off drill. That's my favorite one. Okay. And then after that, I'll do, in the book, I describe going into core workout. Okay. Uh, and I've changed my take on that kind of stuff a little bit. I've I've learned to think about core um, in terms of strength building core exercises. So l- low repetition, but high intensity, like levers or L-sits or a toes to bar mm. versus like things that are longer, but lower intensity, like planks. Like holding or, a plank for a minute. Or crunches or something like okay. that, you know? Yeah. And so I've 
I try to split my time between both of them and do a little bit of each. Okay. I've found the high intensity ones to be more useful. Um, and then I also think planks are super useful for some reason. I'm not exactly sure I understand why, but they are just fantastic as hmm. far as like general body tension goes. Hmm. Um, but my core has gone a lot stronger stopping doing a um, hundred crunches or, you know, doing like the Tabata <laughs> timers. Okay. Where you do like 30 seconds of this exercise, 30 seconds of that exercise for 10 minutes or whatever, like those yeah, YouTube videos. Those like suffer fest yeah, circuits. Yeah, I've stopped doing those and started just doing L-sits or levers. I'm not very good at levers, so practicing those. And my core and roofs has has increased a lot huh. just from making that one switch. Interesting. Um, so that's what's basically described in the book with variations based on length and the amount of work you're doing and the amount of exercises you're doing um, on your your level. Okay. It's how, how it goes into that. And it kind of shows you how to, what percentage of each should be depending on your level. And then, you know, it gives you these kind of slots to fill in with exercises. And in the back of the book are a lot of different exercises that you can use. And, and each exercise is described how to do it, but it also describes what it works. So you can choose, the goal is for you to be able to choose, okay, I need to work on single arm strength. Well, here's exercises that work on single arm strength. I can plug these into the isolation section and work mm. on those. And then there's often variations given to make them easier or harder. Yeah. I was going to ask about that. So you have like this whole chapter of options and people can kind of pick and choose and, and fit that into this framework that you provide. Um, yeah, I was, I was curious, how do you think about what you choose? Is it just based on what you feel like is your greatest weakness at the time or yeah. do you rotate between different exercises? I rotate. So I, I, I generally though will focus on what's my weaknesses. Um, and if I have a really specific project in mind, what that project requires. So if there's a, you know, hopefully I, I have a project that I've tried and I know already that say, I can't do this lock off or I can't hold this crimp. And then I need to work on lock offs and I need to work on finger strength. So I generally base it on that. I base okay. it on my weaknesses. And, and and for me, my weaknesses are, are finger strength. Um, and just actually just generally strength in general, in general is my weakness. <laughs> I can, I don't do a lot of campus boarding anymore because I, I have pretty good power in general that comes naturally to me. Okay. Um, and so I, I don't get as much benefit out of that, although I really enjoy it. Um, that's the next chapter in the book is phasing. It goes into, you can phase it according to periodic. So five weeks of strength training and then a week off and then five weeks of power training and then a week off and then a couple months of climbing is, is the way it prescribes in the book. Mm -hmm. um, you could, there's also nonlinear training where you turn everything into a certain, certain blocks and you do a certain number of blocks a week. And it doesn't matter when in the week you do them, you can do two a day, you can do three a day, you can do them back to back, you can take two rest days. It's supposed to be for somebody whose life schedule is a little less uh, scheduled, I guess. Mm. And then the number of blocks you do and the intensity of those blocks varies depending on how, uh, you know, what level you're at is, okay. is the goal. And so I I actually really enjoyed that type, but I, I'm a structure type of person. So I ended up falling back to doing the structures. Okay. And I've changed my personal protocols a little bit. Like this, what's described in the book is what took me in 2016, I had done one V11. And by the time I wrote this book, I had done 30 or something Wow! like that. And, and, and that's that this training is based on what I think and what I perceive from my personal experience of having brought me there. It's also based on the training plans I made for friends and what I think really worked for them. Yeah, I was gonna ask about that. Like what kind of results have other people seen from this? I've had, I mean, so I've had, I've done a lot of training plans for friends. Um, my girlfriend being one of them, she, when I met her, she was climbing V4. That was four years ago. She did her first V10 last year. Wow. Um, and so she's, <laughs> wow. she's also like physically kind of a monster. Um, she, her dad does Ironman competitions. Like uh -huh. like her her family is, is very, very um, 
an athletic family for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she, so she's had really good results. Um, and you know, and, and doing V nines and V eights way more often than she mm. used to. Um, I had a buddy of mine, um, who he, he, I introduced him to climbing. He lost 60 pounds in climbing. He weighed 240 and got down to 180. And he did his first V8s after doing some of my training. Wow. Um, his girlfriend did her first V5 and 6 after doing some of my training, coming from like V3 um, within within a, like a year or so. Um, I've had other people, you know, have specific projects and manage to send those. And that's worked out really well for them. Um, I've had random people online on like Reddit and stuff like that, where I give the book out for free, contact me to let me know that they sent their V7 project when they were starting out of V5. So it's been, you know, I, I don't want to take credit for that because a lot of these people, they just needed something. They just right. needed a structure. Um, and one of the things that I do think I do a good job at, where maybe I'm not the biggest expert on training is I think I communicate things. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, I communicate things pretty well. And, I haven't and read the whole book, really but help just, people. just scanning through it, it, it's laid out really well. Yeah. I think my, my organization and communication are my strengths. Mm. Um, and for a lot of people, you know, training information can be confusing, can be overwhelming. And that was the goal of this book was to kind of like make it not overwhelming, make it not confusing so they can actually apply it as opposed to giving up. Um, or getting too overwhelmed, they decide they're just going to start climbing again. Mm. Um, so yeah, I've had, you know, I, I can't, um, there's more, I've had more friends who have had some success and, and more strangers who had some success, um, but I don't keep like a running list of all that stuff in my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it seems to have worked pretty well and it's worked for me. And again, yeah. since I did my first 13 in the Rocklands and I've done, I've made some changes to my training and that's one of the reasons I want to do another edition is to reflect some of those new ideas I have and some of those new things I've learned because um, it's a constantly evolving process. Uh, which is part of the difficult part about putting it down. But yeah. nothing fundamental has changed too much, really. Okay. Yeah, maybe just a bit more of an emphasis on the try-hard in the, in the bouldering room. So it sounds like most of the time you're doing this uh, periodic structure. So it's, again, it's like five weeks of strength and then a rest week, mm -hmm. five weeks of more power-focused and then a rest week, mm -hmm. and then you climb outside for a couple months? Two or three months, yeah. What does um, what does the rest week look like? Is that 100% off? No, I go climbing. Oh, you go climbing? I go climbing. Okay, I, can't, just, I can't not go climbing. You just don't train. Yeah, I just don't train, and I need to be sane. I got to keep yeah. I try to get three or four days of, of straight rest, though, before I start the next week. Okay. Um, so usually I'll finish a training cycle... And the training program includes going outdoors for a weekend too, like the way that it's described in there. Because I think it's important to keep right. remembering why we're doing this. Let's touch on that then. What's the what does a typical week look like in the training program yeah. that I describe? In this one, it's basically training on Tuesdays and Thursdays, um, doing fitness or antagonist training on Mondays and Wednesdays. And they, of course, these days can be shifted depending on what your work week looks like. But this is for the basic weekend person. Weekend warrior. Um, then climbing outdoors on the weekends. Um, okay. And that's it. That's really, it's really, so it's, it's two really focused training days. Um, I think for the advanced one, I might include some training on a Sunday too, after you go outside, some, some non-finger work stuff. Um, but I, it was important to me to get outdoors once a week if possible, because not everybody can do that. I was lucky enough to live in Bishop when I was developing this stuff. Um, but I, I find number one, that helps me stay sane because climbing is a, an important part of my, you know, process of dealing with the world, <laughs> but also I think going outside regularly while you're training, um, maybe not having too high expectations because you're going to be tired, obviously, but it can help apply the training better later. Sometimes people find a gap. They've been training really hard indoors and they go climb outside and it's almost like they forgot how to climb outside. They've got mm -hmm. the differences between indoor and outdoor climbing. Mm -hmm. And so keeping that constant connection to outdoor climbing or especially the area you want to be in um, can really help. And I do find it useful to take a couple months off of training and just climb and have some fun and try to apply it because... 
I don't know. That's why we're here. Right? <laughs> it's easy to forget. Yeah. Um, I even catch myself sometimes wishing I climbed outside less because I think I'd get stronger faster. Hmm. Um, but I also might go crazy, explode, and never climb again or, or something, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, for, for Steph and I, the last four years has looked like two 12-week cycles. That's five weeks with a week off, five weeks with a week off. So, 12-week, two 12-week cycles a year. Okay. Um, usually in the fall and then in the spring. So for us, it works around the school schedule. Got it. Um, and then we'll have some send phases in there and things like that. Okay. Yeah. And so one thing I do want to add in the third book is, um, you know, maybe that doesn't work with your life structure and you have a little bit more fluidity and you want to, you know, be able to train and send outside kind of more or less depending on when the uh, the time comes available. So talk a bit about more how to strategize that and how to implement a training plan in that kind of um, uncertain circumstance, mm. you know? And then, yeah, so I, I, things that I've changed, um, nothing fundamental, but my antagonist days look a little bit different. My fitness days look a little bit different. My core training has changed a little bit. Okay. Um, those are all things I want to reflect in the new edition if I get around to doing it. Yeah. <laughs> you said something interesting last night. We were talking about the book and you said, it was kind of an offhand comment, but I'm curious about it. You you just said, you know, there's a, new, a whole nutrition chapter in there. And I think you said it was all trash and <laughs> you're going to just throw it out or something. Yeah. Um, it's not trash, it, right. but I did say that. I did say that, and I, and I say that because I want people to think of it as trash. Okay, well, yeah. What is the what is the disclaimer there for the disclaimer that is that I'm not a nutrition expert. People have eating disorders, <laughs> and we should be wary about that. I've had mm. had a borderline eating disorder in the past, and I have a tendency to undereat. That's why I got so injured so many times. I think, huh. um, you know, the three years that I was a vegetarian, and no shade on being a vegetarian. I think. Personally, I was probably just doing a bad job of it um, and not paying paying enough attention. I figured out later, so this is very much like a post hoc calculation, that I was averaging maybe eighteen hundred calories a day for three years. That's awful. That's really. And, but low. I was eating all the time. Um, hmm. But I was I was vegetarian, then I was a vegan, and so they weren't necessarily very calorie dense. And I was you know, I, but I would eat a pound and a half of mixed nuts a week, a pound of peanut butter a week, like way too much soy. Mm. more soy than is probably healthy for me personally. So I, I felt like I was eating enough. I just wasn't really like taking, paying attention to making sure I was getting enough protein and then everything exploded in my body. <laughs> um, and so nutrition has become important to me since then. And, and for me, it's really important to count calories to make sure I get enough. Um, so I actually know how many grams of carbs and protein and fat I get every day at a base. That's my base. I try to get at least that much and then I snack over it if I'm hungrier generally. Okay. Um, and I know that's not very... It's not a very good or popular way of looking at things these days, right? With all this talk of... Like of, counting everything. Yeah, yeah. The, the people would consider that neurotic and, and already on its way to a, a, an eating disorder. And that might be true. And for me, I'm dealing with, you know, this past of having undereaten a lot and having to work through that spe specific circumstance. And, and so I understand. that's one of the reasons why I'm really, really wary about including a nutrition chapter in the next one. Because... It's just such a difficult topic and there's a lot of responsibility in there and I am not up to the responsibility as far as like my credibility and my expertise mm. goes in there. I don't have any. Um, what I wrote in this chapter works for me and it's worked really well for me. And it was a lot of it was gleaned before nutrition was like an open topic in the climbing community. So mm. I was going to like bodybuilding websites because those guys <laughs> are, are full on shameless about their eating disorders. They don't, yeah. they don't care. They, they're willing to make that sacrifice, which is not good. Um, but you can, you can see it in the way you, when you read this stuff, like on bodybuilding.com, it, it's like, you're going to be unhappy. You're going to be starving, but that's the way it is. And you're just like, wow, <laughs> not great. Um, but yeah. they also 
for you know since the 80s and the russians right and the russian powerlifting and stuff like that became a thing these people really know how to build muscle fast how to build muscle in specific places how to cut fat how to cut weight um wrestlers are another example of people who have been doing this for a really long time yeah um and, and they have a lot of information and i think it's worthwhile and so I gleaned a lot of information from that, also a lot of personal experimentation, but that's the thing is it's very personal. Mm. And I do think some of the information there is useful, but Steph and I eat the same thing every day. We've been eating the same thing every day, uh, like with minor variation for years now, and it doesn't bother us. Mm. And a lot of people, they can't do that. They need more variety in their diets. I actually prefer not having to think about it. I prefer knowing what I'm going to get and knowing why I'm getting it and, and not having, it's just, it frees up space to think about more interesting things. Yeah. You know, um, whether or not I, I hate arguing about like, are we going to have pizza? Are we going to have burgers? Or <laughs> I just want to eat and move on. Yeah. I'm, I'm more like you. I feel a lot of mental freedom from having routine yeah, in yeah. a lot of things yeah. and with my eating. And I mean, the way that it affects your decision-making all the way to, you know, all the way from what you're going to cook to how you walk through the grocery store. Like it, yeah. it really does make yeah. a lot of things simple. Well, and then, you know, Steph and I have committed ourselves to, to kind of an economically minimalist life and it mm. saves you money if you know mm. what you're going to get and, and you're, you're not buying a bunch of ingredients you're not going to use and stuff like that. Um, so it's also been a way that we've been able to really be able to do this life that we're doing, um, while not having to work full time. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. has been nice in a lot of ways. Interesting. So in a third edition, I do, nutrition has to be talked about because everybody wants to know about it, right? Like huh. you don't get anywhere by ignoring it necessarily. And it's an important part of the, the equation. I would just prefer it if I had somebody like Katie Lambert write that section for me or or check that section for me before I were to sign off on it personally, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, again, responsibility is a big thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I've had Katie on the show and that was an interesting conversation that we had last night about some of the things you learned from her. But yeah. um, I, I wish we had more time to go into all this, but I'm, I guess maybe simply how well does that chapter reflect what you're still doing? Pretty close. Yeah. Okay. Pretty close. I just try to eat more. Um, try to eat more. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I, I try to be flexible with how rigid I am with it. So I still make a plan personally, and it's based on um, eating a little less on rest days, eating a little more on um, climbing days, actually a lot more on climbing days. So I'm kind of varying between low calorie and high calorie days. And then I also vary my carb, protein, and fat ratios based on the days. And that's all explained in there in the book based on whether I'm recovering or whether I'm performing, I guess mm. is the way that it goes. Um, but now I try to be a little more flexible. So when I first started trading plan out personally, um, and again, this, this may go counter to some of the conventional wisdom these days, and this may be bad advice. So please take it with a grain of salt. Um, I make my plan for my diet. Again, this is mostly based on the fact that I need to make sure I get enough and I get the right stuff. And then I eat pretty freely beyond that. I'll snack a lot. And I try to snack on mostly protein and fat. I try not to snack on carbs personally because they seem to affect me more. I seem to gain weight in a way that I don't like that way. Mm. Um, so when I first started training plan, I eat pretty freely based on this base tri uh, base diet that I've made. And then as I'm getting close to my trip, I start to get stricter on the diet, still making sure I'm getting the right amount of food. But I start to cut out that little bit of excess that I'm snacking on. And I try to lean out a little bit personally. And then... So like I have a little extra weight when I'm training, which I think is good, and then have a little bit lean. But then as I go into a send phase, I let myself snack based on my needs again. Okay. Uh, I don't want to get injured necessarily. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I generally fluctuate between those two depending on what I think I'm at, what I think my needs are. Um, it can be hard though because 
I don't know. It's just hard. Like I'm a neurotic person already. <laughs> I already have trouble with my diet. So I think this actually helps me, but like, it's really easy to see how what I just described could turn, could turn really bad for somebody, Yeah. you know? And so I would be wary about that. I know people who don't have to think about what they eat and they do, they do fine. Right. Um, I'm just, you know, this just doesn't work for me that well. Yeah. Because I don't perceive it as working for me that well. If I eat freely, I weigh like 190 pounds <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's fine, I guess. But my, I started climbing late. My fingers aren't that strong. Yeah. They can't hang there. Um, well, and it's it's hard too. I think it's a really unique challenge because we have an entire industry. Like if you go in the grocery store, the vast majority of the things in there were designed by people who are very, very smart, who know how to kind of hijack your yeah. biology, right? Yeah. Like we want to seek out nutrient dense or calorie rich palatable foods and they are everywhere so yeah. our, our modern food environment can really backfire on us if we just eat whatever we want whenever we want so yeah and i, I think that's what makes it so hard because yeah when i find that th having a plan and going into it with a plan is like almost defense against those people mm -hmm. against that marketing stuff you know yeah, yeah. um because they're winning that battle for sure in right every every developed country in the world and half right. the non-developed countries obesity is an issue everywhere right so obviously um and, and it's 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 weird because obviously it's a fraud issue and it should be a fraud issue but I, you watched the light documentary recently yeah it's, it's really fantastic. really good some of the things that i really liked and i wish um it got more into although it had its own emphasis and, and that and it was a good emphasis is how you know we talk a lot about this heavy dieting stuff to be to be quite bad um and it can be bad for sure um, but it's also i think what probably the majority of elite athletes do um, yeah and it really is a thing that we we applaud in people without really meaning to and we want to be like them um and if that then this is part of the tool chest in a lot of ways and that's unfortunate you know and um i don't know if that says something about climbing as as a or bouldering as a goal in itself right because it's it's such a specific type of climbing like if you're a mountaineer you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff <laughs> so it's it's really difficult to find the line through that um if that makes any sense you know and so for me trying to go back and forth between um you know, being strict when I really need, feel like I need to lighten up or lean up for a, uh, for a, a, a send season or whatever, and then letting myself go for a little while and just really enjoying food again. And, you know, Steph and I make sure to have red meat once a week and once a week we'll have a giant meal with ice cream and everything, like really <laughs> try to even that out hmm. and let go and let loose for a day. Um, cheat meal, we call it and that kind of thing. That's really helped those little kind of tricks. But like you said, our biology evolved in very specific circumstances and scarcity, and we don't live in that anymore. Um, we live in, in opulence. And so it's, it's really hard to find that line. And for me, the discipline, um, approaching it from a discipline perspective, which, which is another lesson that I've learned in my life that's really been important to me is that true freedom for me comes from discipline and from the ability to control your impulses, not indulging in them. Yeah. And so I, applying that to diet, again, it's weird saying that after after watching light and I and I would encourage people to be really, really careful and really search themselves about it and what they think is best. But for me, it's been really good. Yeah. That's a perfect segue. I reached out to our mutual friend Dave. Oh yeah. Before this conversation. He's how we actually connected. I yeah. I had met you a few days before, I think, in the Martini Cave, and then I was, you know, talking to Dave and he's like, Hey, you should really this guy wrote this cool book and you should really talk to him. It it'd be really interesting. Uh, I reached out to him to see if he had any questions, and he had several really good questions. I don't think we have time for all of them, but uh, to what you just were speaking to, I'm going to read his question. This is this is exactly what he sent me. He wrote, 
My favorite part of his book was the mental training. He had a beautifully worded section on discipline, and it seems he got a lot of these ideas from martial arts. He says that we live in an age where we equate freedom with giving into our impulses, which has led to a lot of unhappiness, divorces, etc. Whereas he believes you gain more freedom from learning to control your impulses and not give into them and utilize your discipline. I thought that was beautiful and would love to hear more about that, as well as how he developed those ideas and values. Yeah, this is something that's really close to my heart and really important to me um, and, and comes from my entire life, basically, before climbing. You know, I was raised, my, my dad, how do I put this? My dad um, is from Argentina. He came from an incredibly poor background. He's been working in a factory since he was nine. I think I already said that. Um, and then he came and started his own business and, and lived the American dream. Right. And then lost it all in uh, mm. in the 2008 financial crisis. Everything that the dream house he built, the car that he wanted, uh, my college fund, everything was gone. Wow. Um, and it was for me as an it was a really growing experience for me because I was like a bratty kid because I never wanted anything. You know, even when we were younger, when I was younger and we were poorer and like, you know, pretty low class when my dad was first starting out in his business, you know, he doesn't speak English, starting a business, just him and a spray gun painting houses. Hmm. Um, pretty much every, no education, a sixth grade education in Argentina doesn't count for anything. Basically no education in America. They always sheltered me from the, the feeling, the want or the need, say, you know, so I never went hungry or anything like that. I never really knew how bad things were until much later in my life. Um, so I grew up kind of spoiled and, and I was kind of spoiled and I was super unhappy hmm. and I had everything I wanted. <laughs> you know, um, my parents bought me a $40,000 sports car, like paid for when I was 18. Wow. And my dad, that was the year my dad made his most money. Like that was the year he was the most successful. And then I sold it several years later for five grand. Um, because I couldn't sell it to anybody else and we just needed the money. Um, and and learning how to be happy when I didn't have very much, when my parents didn't have money, when I, when I couldn't afford anything, versus how unhappy I was when I could just ask my parents for basically whatever I wanted. They would have paid for me to go to film school. They would have done anything. Um, they, they helped me travel around and things like that at that age. The, the difference between those two, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And kind of the a moment of clarity came in one of my literature courses um, and I do think literature is really actually really good for this and really important for this. And I can't remember the exact poem, but there's a poem by, uh, I think it's Tennyson, and it's a sonnet. And the sonnets have to have a very specific structure, right? They have to have like a specific so a rhyme structure and they have to have 14 lines and depends on if it's Shakespearean or a Petrarchan sonic or whatever sonnet. Um, but he's t in this poem, he writes about how even though there are these limitations in this form of poetry, there's a lot of creativity and freedom that trying to live within these limitations really apply. And that really struck me. Something I knew there was a kernel of truth there I didn't understand. Several years later, I came across Spinoza, uh, the philosopher. He's a, he's a Dutch Jewish philosopher um, who's really, really interesting from the 1600s. And he talks about a lot how, or maybe not a lot, but he, he has a section that stood out to me that talks about how true freedom comes from control, comes from controlling your impulses, not being a slave to your impulses. There's a great book by Somerset Maughan um, called Of Human Bondage, and that's what he called our emotions and our impulses, Spinoza. He called them our bondage, our human bondage. Hmm. Um, and then you get the existentialism, condemned to be free, right? Um, the dread that comes from freedom and absolute freedom. And then you get to Zen and Buddhism, where it's the same thing. We're slaves to our impulses. I um, mean, I really thought about that for a long time. And, and and, and it really, really struck me. But when I started climbing and when I started training, when I started actually applying discipline, that same discipline started to apply everywhere in my life. That's what allowed me to go back to school after dropping out three years, basically flunking out after three years and go back. And now I have a master's and I did pretty well in school. And I actually really enjoyed school. I went from like a 
1.8 GPA to a 3.97 in my master's <laughs> program, you know? And, wow. and that's because of the discipline I was able to apply that I learned through these works and then also really learned through climbing. Um, and I see, and I see so many people and I, I, and again, this is just the way that we live. And, and this applies to me too. And I've done, I've had periods in my life where I do this, where they work so hard because they think that being able to do whatever they want will make them happy. Hmm. And they never really stop to think about the value of what they want. And that's where that discipline comes in, being able to really choose what's important and choose and know why it's important and why it matters. And then actually be able to chase it while, you know, having to fight the casino machine that is our life right now and like the normal consumer economics, you know? Um, so the idea of, of discipline as a path to freedom, um, you, again, you see it in Bushido culture, you see it in, in, in almost every ascetic culture from India to Japan to South America and all that type of stuff. Um, you even see it in some ways in like the, the beats and Kerouac and all that kind of in, in literature. Um, Tolstoy talks a lot about it as well. It seems to be this kind of kernel of wisdom that has been passed around through almost every spiritual or non-spiritual tradition that values wisdom in of itself, even Sam Harris talks a lot about it, um, but that we've really based our entire lives on the opposite. Um, and that can be really tough, mm. you know? And so, yeah, I, I was a really unhappy, angry person growing up, um, despite all my obvious advantages. And I, I made use of none of them, you know? And, and, it, and it, it's frustrating now to think about that and think about how, how much more I could have done and how many more people I could have helped say, mm. um, especially on that front or how much better of a teacher I could be if I would have started thinking about this earlier, um, but a little better late than never. And at this stage in my life, learning how to really address and, and evaluate my impulses and really be able to sideline the ones that I know are destructive. Like I, I would love to smoke cigarettes again. I was just thinking the other day that I want one really bad, um, but it's, it's terrible for you, right? And it's, there's no, there's no world in where that's a good decision. Maybe one or two is an okay one, but I was like a pack a day back in the day. When was the last time you had a cigarette? Probably three or four years ago. Yeah. Um, I smoked from 18 to 24. Okay. Like, um, almost a pack a day I quit because of, of climbing. Um, and I, I'm the kind of person who can have one occasionally and be okay. Like a couple of buddies of mine who quit with me can't do that. Hmm. Um, and, and they're slaves to that impulse, right? And it's really, really interesting to see. So, yeah, this concept of discipline and freedom from discipline was just so counter to what I mean, it wasn't really counter to what I was raised in. That's I was raised as a Christian. That's part of Jesus's message for sure. Mm. Like that's the, that's the Christian message. That's just not the message that the church raised me with. That's not the message <laughs> that they focus on. They focus on a lot of damnation and all that stuff. <laughs> right. um, shame. Yeah, yeah, it's shame is a big one. And so, being in a, you know in the American consumer culture, which is, has a lot of benefits, I love having thirty five different types of cereal to choose from. That's fine. <laughs> um, but when it comes to actually trying to choose what makes what's of value in your life, it can, it can really be a detriment. Mm. So, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question or not. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing all that. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's really interesting. Um, it's interesting. I, I, I can't help but wonder, or I can't help but think, you know, you're in such an interesting position now to be able to teach that lesson, you know, because you have that contrast to point to from your own experience, you know, like you were just kind of lamenting that you didn't take better opportunity of what you had earlier on, but it's, it's really, I don't know. I think that's a unique gift being able to share everything that you just shared and, and being able to see that contrast so clearly. Yeah. Yeah. And there, it's definitely value in that. That's cool. 
that's that's true. Like I wouldn't I wouldn't have that perspective if I didn't have the contrast between the two. And then at the same time, like one of the reasons why I can think that way is because I didn't want. You know, my dad growing up in a place where he was, you know, very very poor. He was born on a farm. His real birthday is December eighteenth, but his legal birthday is January fifth because in Argentina, you have to go to the courthouse and get a birth certificate. And he was born you know, um, at a time when they didn't feel like going into town. And, and, and so that, and like, not in a hospital, just straight up in a barn, you know? Um, at least that's my understanding of it. And he has one brother who, there's a six-month difference between his legal birthday and his actual birthday because the roads were washed out or something and they couldn't, they couldn't make it into town. You know, he, he's much more focused, my dad's much more focused on, on wealth generation and stuff like that too, but because he grew up without it in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. And so in, in some ways, this is a, a state of privilege coming from this, you know? Um, but I also having been born relatively economically disadvantaged, I guess, in my family from a family with no education and from, you know, my dad's a laborer basically, or was. And then to the point where my dad was buying me that sports car to the point where they lost everything and I had to lend my dad money. Hmm. Um, it's really given me, I th- think, a unique perspective on all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, really informs a lot of the way that I approach my life now. And, and a lot of the reason why I'm don't want to put my eggs in um, certain baskets, <laughs> you know, watching my dad go through that. Cause it's not like my dad um, did anything wrong. He just, so the housing market exploded. That wasn't his fault, you know, like completely pulled the rug out from under him. It was really amazing. And so um, in a, in a, in like an awe inspiring way in like the traditional sense of the word awe, like almost frightening to see how, how little control he had over his life hmm. truly. Um, and so for me, that's another aspect is, is, is being able to, have some control in my life and the things that actually matter and the place I actually can. A lot of time I spend, we all spend time fretting over things we can't control Mm. when there's a whole universe within ourselves that we can control. Um, And we, like Sam Harris talks about this all the time. We live 24 seven with our thoughts and spend so little time trying to learn how to actually flex that skill. You know, we just, we just are on the ride of our up and down emotional thought train um, and never really second guess it. Uh, And that was, that's like, yeah, important lesson for me um, that both applied to climbing and then climbing helped solidify and then applied back to the rest of my life. <laughs> um, but it really wasn't until I started climbing that all this kind of coalesced and made more sense. What are you reading right now? Uh, well, I right now I'm reading, um, I just finished a book called The Global Imagination of 1968. It was a uh, nonfiction book about the 1968 and up into the 70s, like rev- like the civil rights movement here in the States okay. um, and the hippie movement and all that. But it also talks a- talked a lot about different liberation movements all over the world, um, from Japan to Pakistan to South America, and, and, and try to make the argument that what was happening in the United States, what we tend to learn about, and what was happening in France in the May Day riots in France in, um, in the 60s and late 60s was not an isolated event, that hmm. it was a major ch- sh- like shift in the world a consciousness, a way of looking at things. Huh. And it comes from like a very academic perspective. It's not like, um, I'm not a big fan of like new age spiritualism anymore, personally. And so it, it's a very academic book, but it's super interesting and, and really hard to retain all the information <laughs> because it, uh, um, it just has so much information. It and sounds then I'm, dense. I'm also reading my own sci-fi book, like doing a read-through of that before I publish it in a couple months. Yeah, this is... Okay, let's talk about that. So you said this offhand earlier, but I was fascinated to learn this about you. And I was actually on Amazon looking at your books oh, last yeah, night. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you've published a couple of sci-fi books. Two books. Two books, yeah. yeah. Two books. Um, I don't have the name of it here. What's the series called? It's the Cluster Saga. Okay, the I Cluster mean, Saga. Yeah, yeah, tell me about that. 
So the void, the void within the void beyond the one I'm working on right now is the terror of the void. Okay. Um, and there'll be a fourth book and yeah, they were just, I just wanted to publish. I didn't even want to publish. I just wanted to write a book and I like science fiction. I've always liked writing. Um, I wrote my first short story when I was in the sixth grade and I remember really it passed around the school and people liked it and it involved some of the students in, in the school and <laughs> everybody had a lot of fun with it and I really enjoyed it. Um, and in high school and right after college, I wanted to write serious fiction which was terrible. I'm terrible at writing serious fiction. I'm really bad at that. What do you mean? Uh, I'm just not a good at serious, serious fiction being like, like Steinbeck. Like literature. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm just not good. Okay. Um, maybe I'd be better now, but at the time I was not good. And it also was a very brutal and painful experience. It was like awful. <laughs> I did not enjoy it and I quit writing for like a decade. Wow. Um, other than the stuff I wrote in school, which I actually enjoyed a lot. And so when I went, I wanted to write a novel though. That's like an old goal. And so I was like, I'm just gonna write a sci-fi novel. I'm just gonna have some fun. I'm going to build a world that I think is cool and I'm going to have some fun. And, and it turns out you can, and I can put in a lot of my own philosophical perspectives and, and basically my sci-fi books about religion and politics and society and the intersections of all that. Hmm. Um, a lot, the second book's a lot about extremism um, and things like that. And so I wrote a book and I didn't know what to do with it. So I decided to self-publish it. And then I wrote a second book in the same series. It wasn't supposed to happen, but it turned out to be that. Now there's going to be four probably. <laughs> um, I think after this one I'm working on now, I'm going to take a break and write a separate book that I'm going to try to seek a traditional publisher out of. Okay. Because self-publishing is fun. It's kind of like got this Wu-Tang feel where you're like selling <laughs> CDs out of the back of your car or whatever, right? You're just trying to get people to read it. Uh -huh. um, but it's also a lot of work and it'd be nice to have somebody else do that. Hmm. And if I ever want to make a portion of my income from writing, I don't ever want to stop teaching. Um, then I don't want to have the, the marketing is, is difficult, all that mm. kind of stuff that you have to do. And I'm not good at that. I'm not good at selling myself. I'd rather have somebody else do it if they like my writing. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's fun writing. It's, it's really quite the fun experience, even separate from people enjoying it or people disliking it, which happens um, separate from actually getting it done and publishing it. Just the, the experience of writing itself. Again, another experience in discipline, you know, the way that I operate is I make a, a pretty detailed outline and then I write a thousand words a day until it's done. Hmm. Um, and so the first one took me 70 days. The second one took me a hundred. This one, last one took me like 80. Um, and <laughs> wow. I, I just don't even worry about if it's good. I don't look back. I, I finish it, put it away for a month or two. Then I go back and start working on it. Interesting. Um, and that's been a really good system for me personally. How involved is the revision and edit process after that first draft? The first one was pretty involved. Yeah. Um, there was like quite a bit of work. The second one was a little less. Because I, I do a lot of planning ahead of time and I do I like my detail, my chapter outlines are relatively detailed. Yeah. Um, so mostly it's just cleaning up to make sure that the, because my, my stories follow separate characters. So there's lots of timelines going on, making sure they fit together in a way that doesn't like say reveal something too early. I had a problem with that with this last book um, where I needed to really shift around some chapters. That was maybe the most difficult thing and, and, and split some chapters up and change them to make sure that they, the timeline actually flowed. And then there's always grammar and typos and things like that. But they, for whatever reason, I, I remember listening to a podcast one time that there are two different types of creative creatives, which um, this is obviously an oversimplification, but the ones that like really want to work on one project until it's perfect and ones that want to finish something and then learn from that process and apply it to the next project. Hmm. And when I was working on like literary stuff, I would just agonize over sentences or ag like, like Hemingway or something like just hammer drunk, trying to just 
figure out how to get this idea across. And it was just the worst experience ever. Hmm. And, and I never got anything done that way. And I never learned anything that way because I was just so busy reworking the same project. It just doesn't work for me. So what I learned through these books is, okay, my first book, I wasn't very happy with it. Some people liked it. Um, but I learned a lot in that process. I, I moved forward and applied to the next one, which I was relatively happy with. Hmm. And then I'd same thing. I, so I don't, I try not to get caught up doing too many crazy revisions, trying not to make it be perfect, especially because I considered these first four or three books to be kind of practice for when I actually try to write something I want to publish in a more traditional sense. And, okay. And so they're all very different too. Like the first book is, um, then they're all kind of more Star Trek than Star Wars, right? They're a little more like based on ethics and stuff than action. Yeah. But like the first book is all about <laughs> religion and, and, and economics. The second book's all about extremism, a little more religion. This book is very uh, action-based. I wanted to practice my action scenes. So I wrote like uh, an outline that was a lot more space battles and stuff. Okay. Um, and it makes sense in the arc of the story. Um, but they are. And then the next one's going to be way out there, like psychedelic sci-fi. <laughs> and then the one that I want to, the story I'm working on to eventually hopefully publish is more like an environmental based uh, sci-fi book. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. And so this series should be read in order. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They, and I've had a couple of people who have like randomly picked up the second one. They're, they all work independently. Okay. Um, they all li exist in the same world. And the first book lays that world out. It's like the first Lord of the Rings, right? Mm. It lays that world out the, 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 the most distinctly. Um, but the storylines are, are fairly independent of each other and can be read separately. Okay. Um, so they don't necessarily have to be read in order. Can you give me kind of like the back of the book uh, yeah. premise for The Void Within? So in... It takes place in the 2400s. Okay. At this point, people have basically exploded out into the into the universe, into the Orion arm of the galaxy. That's the arm of the galaxy that we currently exist in with all these different stars that are here. What happened is after what I call in the book the post-terror year, so basically right after this, a bunch of people in developing countries, once um, the gravity well problem gets solved and it's much easier to access space, a bunch of people in developing countries are just like, screw this, and they leave. You know, they're tired of being exploited and they end up trying to develop their own communities and their own economics on these different planets. And over time, they coalesce into two basic social groups. One is called the coalition, which is a federation of planets that operate very similar to economic principles that we operate under today in the global economy. And then there is the inner cluster, which is a um, Eastern religion inspired um, social utopia in a lot of ways um, with some problems for sure. Interesting. Um, but they're, they are basically based out of like Islam, although it's not Islam. And they also have like a heavy Hispanic unit there um, Okay. that hang, that hangs out there. Uh, and they include some other, there's also some other, like the, there's some transhumanists that hang out and there's like these, uh, religious ascetics that hang out too. And they do their own thing, but they're held. And so they basically want to keep their distance, these two groups, because they have very different fundamental world perspectives, but they're held in an economic, balance because at some point somebody discovered this thing called the source which is the source of animate life um, the difference between living matter and non-living matter is this thing and they eventually learn how to use it for energy and it becomes an infinite clean energy source hmm. but the coalition has the technology to use it and the inner cluster has the access to the only type of ore type of metal that is possible to actually utilize it so you have one with the technology one with the resources hmm. and that forces them to work together um, but it doesn't go that well, obviously. <laughs> and so there's a bunch of other stuff that comes up in there, um, but it's all based off that tension and it focuses on the inner cluster and follows this group of military characters and, and diplomats hmm. um, as they try to navigate that the tensions between them. And eventually there are 
outside forces that come in and all sorts of crazy stuff happens. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that's, that's basically it, I guess. Cool. So yeah. the first two books are available on Amazon, on, yeah. on Kindle and paperback as yeah, well? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kindle and paperback. And then if people are interested in reading it, um, if you wait a little while... <laughs> Usually on Kindle, when you self-publish on Kindle, they allow you to give the book out for free for five days every three months. And so when I finish this book and I put it out in March, I'll make all the books free on Kindle. Okay. Um, so they can pick up all three of them for free for their Kindle if they want. If they want a paperback, they have to pay. Okay. Um, and I put them as cheap as possible. I'm not trying to make any money here. Uh, really, the value for me comes out in the, at this point in my writing career, I guess, comes from the feedback I get trying to be a better writer. I'm hmm. um, trying to get better at writing, get more comfortable putting it out there. And, and also building a small audience, you know? Yeah. Um, I've had several thousand downloads. I don't know how many people have read it, but I've had people reach out and say they really enjoyed it. Um, it tends... You know, some people don't like it because it. They say it's a little, um, it's a little lefty, I guess, right? Mm. Like the so, the good guys are a social utopia mm. in a way. That's probably <laughs> obvious. Um, but it also is is it deals heavily with philosophy and religion. A lot of the action takes place in the characters' interior monologues, um, which is what I like in books. Mm. Um, you know, it's kind of an old style of writing, so there's not as much action except for maybe this third book where there is more because um, I'm practicing that. But yeah, I think I think if they like it and if they're willing to wait, they can get all three of them for free. And, and then um, if they really want to support me, they can buy a book in the future when I get published. Cool. Yeah. I'm excited for that. I've got my Kindle sitting right next to me. Here, oh, yeah, so. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll be sure to If you to like sci-fi, they can be fun. If you like Star Trek, if you prefer Star Trek, that's probably okay. If you prefer Star Wars, eh, you may not like it as much. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of the way it goes. I find myself trending more Star Trek as I get older. That happens. <laughs> I've right? converted. I converted when I was 27. Yeah, that, I think uh, it's a really natural thing. That's my, my captain's pips. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's what they're supposed to be, like an like <laughs> abstract you, representation. Carlos is showing me a tattoo on his uh, above his collarbone. That's what is that mimicking? They're, it's like the, it's the stars on the pips. Yeah, they, okay. they, they have their rank by these dots on their collar. <laughs> and so this is aspirational. I want one day I want to be like Captain Picard in the next generation. <laughs> so I got a tattoo to remind me of the example that he sets. Um, yeah, I converted to Star Trek when when I was a substitute teacher. I was like breaking up all these fights. Huh. And, I, and I remember distinctly I was subbing a special ed class and they're like sixth graders. And there were these two boys like throwing blows right really really aggressive it was really scary and one of them i realized later one of them was quoting bad boys 2 the movie wow and the other one was just spitting like racist stuff that he heard from his family or whatever and i was just like what is happening so i swore off any media that um glorifies violence or trivializes violence trivializes violence huh. for a year which means i can't watch anything except for star trek <laughs> turns out star trek the old ones especially the next generation they make it a point that cooperation wins not competition hmm. um the group wins and, the, and they always solve their problems with the group and through science not through violence and the individual it's like the anti diehard <laughs> you know and, and i really appreciated that wow um and it really like i spent a year watching it when i was in school um, I'm not much of a TV watcher in general, and it, it just really showed me that you can, you know, you can use storytelling towards different ends, and that's what they, I think they were trying to do. I love it. Hmm. I love Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. So, you guys, I should uh, let you go here because you guys are off today. Where are you off to? Yeah, we're heading to Roy for a week. Yeah. Um, I this is more my fault than Steph's. It's a little warm here now, so yeah. I hate climbing the heat. But at the same time, I've been like really losing the mental battle out here. Okay. Um, which is funny because I think I've taken my own mental fortitude. This is something I've been thinking about the last couple of days a lot. So it's on my mind. I've been taking my mo mental fortitude, I think, for granted um, because I've never lived through a year like 2020 mm. and I've never had it truly tested. 
Um, a lot of the way that I've dealt with things is just considering them to be not important and not worth dealing with, hmm. I think, in my life, right? So, like, say economics and making money just isn't that important to me, and it's easy to wash that off. But, you know, race riots and the potential end of American democracy is a little <laughs> harder to a little harder to ignore. Hmm. And, and also, you know, realizing that ignoring it is not a good solution, especially as a teacher. And so I got real frustrated on a couple projects, and it started to do that, you know, that voice in your head, you're getting weaker, you're getting weaker, you're getting hmm. weaker, be careful, you're getting weaker just like started to roll and roll and roll and it was really in a bad place and sometimes the best thing to do is to move on somewhere else and get new new projects mm. um i was struggling and then yesterday i had a actually a really good session on one of my projects tequila sunrise yeah i realized that it, it really is just <laughs> the mental part of it you know i was just getting tired mentally um and and it needed a break and needed some new rock interesting so we're gonna go to roy for a week and then the weather looks really cold after that um, and from there, we might come back here. Okay. Because um, the weather gets good here. We want to head east because I've never been able to check out any of that southeast sandstone. Sandstone is my favorite. <laughs> but the weather also looks pretty bad. Okay. It looks like it's going to be cold and rainy. So, yeah, it's funny because we made the plan to leave because I was struggling mentally. And then all of a sudden, through a couple conversations I've had with my girlfriend, through really like evaluating myself and really taking the time to do that, and, and also just realizing that it's okay to struggle mentally like it's not necessarily a sign of weakness it's just a part of the game hmm. um and having i have a good friend that i talked to uh, for a while and he, he helped me out a lot with that he went through like a catastrophic injury recently he severed his bicep tendon Ugh. on a climb in roy actually and he couldn't climb for a year and he's he's done a lot of mental work through that had to yeah so talking to him was really helpful and then yeah yesterday i had a really good time and didn't want to leave all of a sudden <laughs> it's funny how like whim whims like it's just the whims of the it's ego you fascinating know fascinating how quickly that yeah. can change and like, like I'm day to day works hard to keep that at bay not keep it at bay but to realize that like i am not my thoughts i am not those ups and downs that is not who i am mm. you know, i'm separate from that and i've done i feel pretty good about that generally but i let my guard down for a little while and i collapsed straight into identifying <laughs> with that voice and that was bad for like mm -hmm. a week there. And that was not very fun to be around. Steph's a, a saint. Up with me. <laughs> well, maybe you'll have some better conditions in Roy and then you'll be psyched to come back. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Yeah, I know, <laughs> the psych always comes back. Yeah, it's, all, it's always good back. to leave somewhere when part of you doesn't want to. You yeah, know, keeps yeah. Keeps you hungry to come back. And, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good way yeah. of looking at it. Yeah. Um, this is something I ask everybody. What is something you've been feeling especially grateful for lately? I've been feeling especially grateful for Steph, my girlfriend. Hmm. Um, you know, it sounds pretty cliche. She's, I'm the kind of person who always wants to talk to people and always wants to put myself out there, kind of. I, I struggle with that a lot, but I, I like have a strong personality and, and she tends to hang back a little bit more. Um, and she tends to maybe, you know, stay in the background a little bit more and let me talk and stuff like that. And it's really come apparent, become apparent to me in the last year uh, how much... She, uh, what else she does to make sure that we have a good time, that our lives are fun, that our lives are special. Even sometimes it's, she's a fantastic cook and she can make all sorts of crazy things <laughs> on our cheat meal days, or even take the normal diet that we have and change it in a way that makes it special, um, you know, in the van and, and our van's like a, sm a pretty small one. Our kitchen setup's difficult, you know, at best. And so she just does a lot of little things um, that make my life easier without really realizing it. And hmm. I've taken that for granted, I think periodically and and so especially with this mental stuff that i've been struggling with the last few days i've been really hard to be around i think i think i've been really negative um, about myself and about things in general and she basically puts up with it um <laughs> and, and and it's really amazing and i'm really lucky to have that um in general you know so that sounds super cliche to, to no, say my girlfriend, awesome. but i love her and, and she's made my life 
infinitely better, I think, than when I didn't have her in there, uh, which is kind of amazing. And she, I spend less money when she's around too, which is crazy. I feel like that's not a common thing. With no. no. Yeah, she's she's very good at saving money and, and making sure things. Uh, you guys seem very aligned. Yeah, yeah, yeah it works cool. out well. Yeah, I mean, it's not very many people that would be willing to live, um, you know, without a toilet for four years. <laughs> for five years without without regular access to a toilet yeah <laughs> you know um, but she that's what we did yeah she was fine with it but, you know that we didn't have a heater and it gets cold in bishop yeah you know yeah so it does we yeah like single it. digits yeah yeah it's yeah. fun <laughs> um final question what what do you feel most excited to learn about right now what's to... got you feeling curious man that is an excellent question i'm always like juggling so many different things and ideas in my head between all the, the books that, you know, this last year has been really, really dedicated to social justice and, and, and not just, you know, I read some, I read like the end of policing, right. Which is a super, super lefty book, like so lefty that even I, somebody who's pretty left, like I, I consider myself a philosophical anarchist actually, which is like an obscure position that isn't actually an anarchist. I'm not actually an anarchist, but um, <laughs> it's just a way of thinking of things that I find really useful based on this essay in, in defense of anarchism from 1977 by Wolf that, that I, I just really struck with me. Um, and so not just, you know, this new social justice stuff, but also like the theory that's been building up to it since the 1800s, since Marx in a lot of ways, right? We use a lot of Marx, uh, Marx thinking in literature, not in terms of like communist thinking, but in terms of thinking of literature in, in economic form. Um, like, what does this literature say about the economics of the time? Hmm. You know, that's one thing that I struggle with when people are really against Marx is we all think like Marx now because Marx invented the way of thinking of history, Marx and Engels. He taught us to think of history in terms of class and in terms of economics. Before that, nobody did that. After that, we all do that. Huh. We're all Marxists, whether you like it or not. doesn't mean we're all communists, for sure. That's something way different. And so I've been reading a lot of that stuff, some of those books I mentioned earlier. And what I'm really excited about is uh, these PhD programs I'm going into, hopefully, should um, I will be teaching as well. I'll be teaching composition. And I'm excited to try to find a way to incorporate some of that information into my class structure without obviously being prescriptive about it without trying to show my students that this is the way they should think or something because I don't believe that. I just think that if you're going to make a decision about how you want to live your life and how you are going to vote and all that stuff, you should have all the information available. And a lot of this social justice stuff is relevant to what's happening now. And a lot of it is also like we're woefully ignorant of it, especially when it comes to like the application of of economics in the third world and the developing world and things like that. I guess third world's not the word anymore. So trying to really find a way to take what I've learned in the last year and turn it into a fruit, into fruitful teaching material. So, mm. which means it's hard because it can't be dogmatic. Right. Right. It's so easy to fall into that. And that's where that whole like cliche of the professor who, whatever, I try really hard not to be that. And I have really generally good relationships with my more conservative students because I'm really respectful of their opinions. I grew up that way. That's my family. Um, but at the same time, some of these things that I've learned about, say, the history of immigration or the um, effective altruism movement, say, I just think it's things that people should know about. And mm. that's my platform is the classroom. But again, doing it in a way that balances and respects their traditions and their beliefs and, and what they're being taught in other courses and from their families, doing it in a way that doesn't push it on them, allows them to make a decision, respecting their decision-making process as well. Um, it's quite the challenge, Yeah. especially when I believe so uh, wholeheartedly about it. But I really also believe that my job as a teacher is not to teach them what to think, but how to think. Hmm. I have just choice over the material. So I'm excited to actually jump into that. <laughs> 
and, and really start focusing on that this year. Especially, I think I'm going to base it around the effect of altruism movement because it's very optimistic and optimism is good. I, I did a couple <laughs> classes, like I had one class where the theme was existential threats. And so we talked about asteroids, we talked about robots, we talked about AI. And by the end of it, everybody's so depressed. And I was like, okay, maybe not, maybe a little less, uh, a little less heavy next time. A little time. more optimism. Yeah. So. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. So where can people find you? You're on Instagram. I'll link to that. Yeah. Instagram is basically what I use now. Okay. Um, I had like a blog for my sci-fi writing. I don't do that anymore. Okay. Um, Cause it's just too, too much work to keep up. Um, <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, I do everything through Instagram, all my sci-fi writing, all my literature stuff, all my teaching stuff, all my climbing stuff is all through my Instagram now. So my Instagram has become a smorgasbord of all the things I'm interested in. I'm also probably, I might try to do uh, with the third book, I might try to do a Kickstarter to get a print run going. So people uh, keep an eye out for that, I guess, if they're okay. interested in supporting that. Um, that's assuming that I decide to, to go through with the third edition. I probably will because it's fun. Um, there's always like that imposter syndrome and all that kind of stuff, right? That's difficult to get past. Um, in the training book, there's like some, there's an, some email information and stuff like that in the beginning too. Um, I still like the Boulder Bushido email. I still get that. So that's fine if they want to contact me there, but it really Instagram is the best way. Okay. And I, I'm, I make it a point to respond to everybody who ever asks me anything on Instagram, hmm. regardless of what it's about. I really have had some interesting, fruitful conversations with strangers online. Hmm. Um, you know, the internet is terrible scary frightening place but there are some good things <laughs> there are some good it. things. so i encourage people if they have questions about anything to hit me up i'm always happy to have a conversation about literally anything uh, i spent a lot of time in the summer arguing religion with people on instagram huh. which again maybe not always super fruitful but pretty interesting like long form week-long conversations i think is okay wow um and had quite a bit of fun about it cool and, and i think also had respectful conversations with people that was inter were interesting so yeah that's basically where they can find and if you know, there's stickers and literature and book recommendations and pictures of my dog. So. <laughs> and what's your handle? Uh, Boulder Bushido. Boulder Bushido. So Boulder, B-O-U-L-D-E-R, Bushido, B-U-S-H-I-D-O, no caps, no spaces, nothing. Just okay, like perfect. I'll link to it in the show notes. Cool, thank you. And I'll link to, I'll put a downloadable PDF link to your training book yeah. and I'll link and to your Amazon. If people find it useful, they um, are free to give it out to anybody they want. Awesome. They can print it if they want. I've had people ask about that if it's okay to print it. You can disseminate that information. Um, I guess the only thing I would be upset about is if somebody put their name on it, but I'm not too worried about it. <laughs> um, but yeah, the goal, number one motto in my life is to be useful. And that's what the book is for. So if you find it useful, share it. And if somebody else finds it useful, great. I'm super happy about that. Well, thanks, man. This conversation has been incredibly interesting and very useful. Well, so, yeah, thank yeah, you. I've had a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. It's been really fun chatting with you over the past few days. And I'm really glad that we got a chance to to fit this in before you yeah. took off. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you for letting me air out some of my ideas. And uh, thanks for doing what you're doing. Also, I think it's really cool. I did a little bit of research on your uh, podcast oh. the other night and looked at some of the people that you've had. And I'm in good company, I think. Um, <laughs> way better company than I deserve. Uh, and, and I like what you're doing. And some of these questions are super insightful. And I, I like that you get past the climbing a little bit. I think that's really interesting and, and really good. Um, and then hopefully our paths will cross again one day and we can climb together more. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. I hope you, I selfishly hope you come back. Yeah. I, <laughs> It'd be I, fun to I, yeah. I had a lot of fun, fun on tequila yesterday and I, and I, I figured out a key piece of beta. Awesome. Um, that I think unlocked it. And so now, now I really want to come back. Awesome. I'd love to at least try the stand start. It's so, so it's so yeah, good. We can it's so hard up. and so good. I can donate some pads. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> yeah. It's got quite the spicy top out, which I hate. I don't like top, high top outs. <laughs> cool. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah. Drive safe today. Cheers. Cheers. That's fun.
Hey friends, a couple quick things before you go. Carlos training book, Training 102, is available as a downloadable PDF in the show notes for this episode. You can find those at thenuggetclimbing.com, and there should be a link right there in your podcast app. I also shared the reading list we talked about earlier in the episode and every other book we mentioned, and I linked to both of Carlos' sci-fi books, The Void Within and The Void Beyond, which are both available on Amazon. And I also linked to Carlos' Instagram. As he mentioned, he plans to give all three of his books away for free on Kindle when the third one publishes later this month. So be sure to give him a follow so you don't miss that announcement when the book drops. And I will be sure to share that on the Nugget Climbing Instagram as well. Which reminds me, I recently decided to level up my Instagram game and I'll be adding more photos and stories and add-ons to these episodes in posts. So if you want to learn more about my guests and see photos and other content that relates to something we talked about in an episode or get more resources that are related, I will be doing a lot more of that on Instagram. So if you don't already, be sure to follow at the Nugget Climbing so you don't miss anything. I've noticed Instagram is also an excellent way to share your favorite episodes, either by referencing them in a post or by sharing them in a story. Be sure to tag me if you do. I always appreciate it, and I think it really helps grow the podcast and reach new listeners, which is awesome. So again, follow Carlos at Boulder Bushido, all one word, and follow the podcast at The Nugget Climbing links to everything in the show notes. If you want to support the podcast, you can do that at thenuggetclimbing.com. Share your favorite episodes, leave a rating on your podcast app, all the things. I appreciate all of it. And most of all, thank you so much for listening. There's no one can